G'day, mate. Forty here. Let's get right into it, man. What, what the heck are hermeneutics of With suspicion? Famous description of Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as the school of suspicion from his 1970 book Freud and Philosophy. And the question is, suspicious of what? Um, now, here's how the Bond School's summer school's course reader puts it, which I think is a good way to start. And this is 1A on your handout. Right? Why are we warranted in trusting the surface meaning of socially relevant forms of expression? Now, warrant in trusting is an epistemic notion. Right? So epistemic notions have to do with what we're justified in believing or accepting. And I'll use justification, warrant, pretty much interchangeably for purposes of our discussion. Right? So the question raised by the school of suspicion is, should we believe the surface meaning of what people say? Or is there a deeper level of meaning of the expression that constitutes its actual or more significant meaning? Now, the school's course reader also suggests that the deeper level may contradict the surface. And that'll sometimes be true, but I don't think that's going to turn out to always be true. And the school's course reader also says that the deeper level of meaning uh, may serve perfidious or at least questionable ends. And I'm going to make a more precise claim about the epistemology, the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is that the deeper meaning tends to serve ends or purposes that the person who makes the expression or accepts it, right, endorses it, would not accept or endorse if they were aware of the deeper meaning, if they were aware of how they had come to believe the particular thing that they are saying. Now, I'm going to work with three examples here. The examples are not Marx, Nietzsche's, or Freud's examples. Well, the last one is a little bit of Freud's. These are meant to be contemporary examples. And these all represent value judgments of various kinds. And that poses additional complications that maybe we'll talk about in discussion. But here are the three. Um, the death tax is wrong, punching down is wrong, homosexuality is wrong. Now let me explain them. Okay? And the first one, the death tax is wrong, is one I'm going to use vis-a-vis -vis Marx. Now the death tax, those of you from the United States will be familiar with this. Those of you from perhaps normal countries won't be. So the death All right, this is a stimulating lecture from 2016. I'm sure you want to know more about the right-wing hermeneutics of suspicion. We'll get to that after some Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Nobody wants to talk about COVID anymore, and that's certainly understandable. This country lost so much in two years, it's depressing to think about it. And the instinct is just to move on. But unfortunately, we don't have that luxury, and for two reasons. First, politicians are continuing to use the virus as a pretext to force their agendas on an unwilling and weary population. That's happening still, believe it or not. And second, and maybe more significantly long-term, somebody's got to rescue science from the ideologues who all of a sudden have taken it over. Science must be objective. Science must be honest. Otherwise, everything falls apart. So with that in mind, this story. In April of last year, researchers at the CDC concluded a months-long study of thousands of healthcare workers. They included first responders, nurses, physicians. The point of the study was to assess whether the COVID vaccine was working. Researchers split the healthcare workers into two groups, vaccinated and unvaccinated, and then they watched. What they found was so significant that the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, went directly to MSNBC to tell the world what researchers had found. And here's what she said. This is word for word. Quote, our data from the CDC today suggests that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, 
And that's not just in clinical trials, but also in real-world data. Now, that turned out not simply to be untrue, but in some sense to be the opposite of the truth. In some cases, the vaccine are more likely to get variants of COVID. The death rates around the world for the vaccinated are extraordinarily high. But at the time, anyone who had doubts about what Rochelle Walensky said was told to shut up. Those who questioned her out loud were kicked off social media. If you kept questioning, you might be fired from your job. Doubting Rochelle Walensky's promises, doubting the Biden administration's claims about the COVID vaccine was totally unacceptable. It was like questioning their views on herd immunity or mandatory masking for children or airline passengers or closing the schools. Now that we know that virtually everything they said about COVID was wrong, however, no one has admitted it and no one has been punished. No one at the CDC was fired for this. In fact, they were elevated. Under Joe Biden, the people who made these claims, these false claims, have even more power than ever. Rochelle Lewinsky is back on television. She's demanding that parents force their children as young as six months old to take the COVID shot. They're all saying this. Tony Fauci, Joe Biden, too. Watch. I know many parents with very young children have been anticipating this day. Parents, I strongly encourage you to get your children vaccinated. They do get infected and they do pass the infection. So we would hope that family members who are responsible for the children will realize that and will be enthusiastic about getting their children vaccinated. And finally, COVID-19 vaccinations for children uh, uh, over five years of age. Finally, some peace of mind. Amazingly despite all of their demonstrated failures, all of their documented dishonesty, those three people are still, as of tonight, in charge of this country's response to COVID. It's remarkable if you think about it. So parents thinking about how to treat their own children are in a very tough position. One of the COVID shots that Walensky and Fauci and Biden are telling you to give your small kids is manufactured by Moderna. Now you might recall that Moderna's COVID vaccine for adults was suspended from use in several countries, after researchers found that it caused potentially very dangerous heart inflammation in young people. The other COVID vaccine that's been approved for toddlers in the United States is made by Pfizer. Pfizer's vaccine for adults has also been linked to heart damage, to myocarditis in young people. So a lot of parents are wondering, should we give this to our toddler? How do we find the answer? Virtually every news show in America seems to be sponsored by Pfizer, so clearly turning on television is not going to give you an answer you can trust. You need to find an independent, science-minded researcher or physician who's looked at the actual data. And there are very few who, who've done that and are willing to be honest about it. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins University is one of them. He's just written a remarkable piece in Barry Weiss's Substack, and he wrote it with epidemiologist Tracy Hogue. McCary and Hogue found that Pfizer and Moderna provided, and we're quoting, extremely weak, inconclusive data to justify vaccinating children as young as six months in the United States. Quote, using a three-dose vaccine in 992 children between the ages of six months and five years, Pfizer found no statistically significant evidence of vaccine efficacy, they wrote. In the subgroup of children aged six months to two years, the trial found that the vaccine could result in a 99% lower chance of infection but that they also have a 370% increased chance of being infected. What does that mean? We have no idea. We don't know how you would know because those data are completely incoherent. They do not present a picture that suggests a path forward. They're inherently confusing.
Meanwhile, Moderna, quote, claimed a very weak vaccine efficacy of just 4% in children aged six months to two years. That is not a statistically significant result either. So based on those numbers, and apparently those are the underlying numbers, how could the Biden administration, how could the people who run public health in the United States of America push for the immediate vaccination of children over the ages of six months? We need to assess what exactly these data are and why public health agencies seem to be ignoring them. Marty McCary, as we told you, is a professor of public health at Johns Hopkins University. He wrote the piece we just referred to, and we're honored to have him on tonight. Doctor, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for taking a look at the numbers behind this. Unless we just mischaracterized them, they don't sound like the basis for a recommendation for universal toddler vaccination. That's exactly right, Tucker. It wouldn't even get published in a medical journal with peer review. It wouldn't go through the process. It would get rejected. Now, doctors everywhere in the world, even in the government, should always be free to speak up about their public health concerns. That is a sacred right that we have to guard. But right now, in the government, recently, and this is a trend in the last year, doctors are muzzled. I've talked to many doctors for this piece at NIH and CDC who are extremely frustrated. They're smart people. They know that a vaccine efficacy of 4% doesn't warrant an authorization. They also know that there's no health emergency right now among kids uh, at six months of age. So I learned a lot. They know the underlying data. They know it's inappropriate. They're not allowed to speak to anyone. If a reporter calls, the communications office has to approve the, the, call, the conversation. And if they uh, want to ask the scientist whether or not they want to do this. They'll say, tell us what you're going to tell the reporter, and then we'll decide whether or not to approve it. At the CDC, a bunch of scientists actually said, look, we recognize the insanity of mass testing, trying to chase down every case of the virus in the United States. It's ubiquitous now. It's not contained. So they came up with a plan to use sampling data like we do with influenza every year and to get better numbers from the hospital of those truly in there for COVID, not just everybody with incidental COVID tests. And that plan was proposed and it was rejected, and they say it was rejected by the White House. And over and over in the different agencies, I heard from smart people who were just extremely frustrated that not only are they bypassing the normal scientific process, but they really can't say anything because if they do, they know that their jobs are at risk and they'll be treated very differently. One person even said, there's no transparency as to how Dr. Fauci makes his decisions. He doesn't even consult with the real experts. And other people have said other things like it's demoralizing that one person at the FDA, even who knows the data really well, said that they feel that they're watching a horror show and they're, they can't close their eyes. They're being forced to watch this. If public health wants to restore some credibility and there's good people in public health, they've been sidelined. The leaders have to have more humility, less absolutism, more answers like we don't know when that's the right answer and less paternalism. That's the only way we're going to rebuild trust in the medical profession and in public health. And I think it begins with individual physicians and researchers like you who act on conscience, speak with integrity, tell the truth regardless. Uh, That will restore faith, at least mine. So I appreciate your starting that by coming on here. Thank you, Dr. Martin. Appreciate it. So we want to go to another story um, that's been brewing tonight. So for weeks, as you know, the January 6th committee 
has been holding hearings. They've been widely covered on the other channels. We haven't seen the news value in them. But there is a bit of news to emerge from that story, and we want to get to it now. So the New York Times has written hundreds and hundreds of articles about January 6th since it happened, describing it as a riot, an insurrection. As part of its coverage last summer, the Times published a video documentary in which the Times reported that one man was actually caught on camera planning an insurrection, encouraging a breach of the Capitol complex. That man's name is Ray Epps. Now, the New York Times noted that Epps was videotaped on both January 5th and January 6th, urging protesters to storm the Capitol. Here it is. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! I'm going to put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail tomorrow. We need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. Now, in a lot of ways, that's the strangest video to emerge from January 6th. We played it several times in this show. Quote, we need to go into the Capitol, into the Capitol, Ray Epps tells the crowd. He says it repeatedly. He's so emphatic about it, encouraging other people to commit a crime that the crowd around him decides he must be a federal agent. They began chanting, as you just heard, Fed, Fed. So shortly after that video surfaced, the FBI placed Ray Epps on a list of people wanted for questioning, and they released it to the public. And you can understand why they did that. According to the Justice Department, what Ray Epps did on that video is a federal crime. In fact, the Biden administration has charged several people with seditious conspiracy for doing precisely what you just saw Ray Epps do, urging others to enter the Capitol complex on January 6th. Here, for example, is a quote from a DOJ press release. It describes the federal case against five members of the so-called Proud Boys, the group you're supposed to be terrified of. Quote, on January 6th, 2021, the Defendants directed, mobilized, and led members of the crowd onto the Capitol grounds and into the Capitol, end quote. Again, that's what you just saw Ray Epps tried to do. But here's the difference. Others who have done that are in prison or facing long terms in prison. But no charges have ever been filed against Ray Epps, despite the fact there's no question he did it, because once more, it's on tape. That's very strange. It just is. And we don't care how many people call us names for pointing that out. It is strange. And we'd like an answer to what the heck is going on. Now, we've asked Ray Epps on this show repeatedly to explain why he thinks he has escaped prosecution. And we'll ask him once again tonight. And we will keep asking because we think it is a very obvious and important question that gets to the heart of what is this exactly. But it's amazing how little Democrats want to hear about this. Again, Nancy Pelosi and Liz Cheney have spent the last year staging an investigation at great expense and then a series of public show trials arresting people in their homes, supposedly designed to discover how and why January 6th happened. But they remain curiously uninterested in the Epps case. We've got what seems like an actual insurrectionist on tape, but they don't want to talk about it. And they definitely don't want you to talk about it or ask any questions. As if to prove that point, the New York Times just ran a piece explaining that when you ask questions about Ray Epps, you are committing a moral crime, maybe even helping Putin. The piece was entitled, It's Just Been Hell, Life as the Victim of a January 6th Conspiracy Theory. Oh, so Ray Epps, the guy telling people to breach the Capitol, is now, in the words of the New York Times, a victim, a victim of your unrestrained curiosity. Now, this piece was written by a reporter who has spent years shilling openly for the intelligence agency.
may give you some sense of where the storyline comes from. Like the agencies themselves, the New York Times piece was highly deceptive. For example, the New York Times says that Epps was, quote, taped urging people to go to the Capitol. Oh, but that's not what the tape shows. Ray Epps was doing something very different. Ray Epps was urging people to go into the Capitol, not to the Capitol. And there's a big difference legally. One is a crime, according to the DOJ, and the other is not a crime. And that's not all Ray Epps did. Epps also told people what they should do once they got inside the Capitol, and that's on video, too. This is just minutes before the first breach of the building that day. Watch. So one more thing. Yeah, so can we go up there? No? When we go in... Are we going to get arrested if we go up here. there? Yeah. You don't need to get shot. When we go in, leave this here. What does that mean? Well, for some reason, the New York Times reporter didn't ask Ray Epps what he meant by that. Now, the reporter spent a day talking to Epps. It was a day-long conversation, according to the story. But that question never came up. No meaningful question came up. It's all very strange. The New York Times is mounting a propaganda campaign on behalf of a self-described Trump voter insurrectionist. Now, this is the same paper that cheered Ashley Babbitt's death. But this same paper is weeping for Ray Epps because people have been mean to him online? Hmm. It's almost like they're trying to cover something up. Now, buried near the end of the New York Times piece, there's a hint. We find this line, quote, Mr. Epps also said he regretted sending a text to his nephew well after the violence had erupted, in which he discussed how he helped orchestrate the movements of people who were leaving Mr. Trump's speech near the White House by pointing them in the direction of the Capitol. Really? What was in that text? We'd never heard of that before, and it kind of makes you think the entire New York Times piece was written to drop that little bomblet at the end in the least damaging way. Now, we'd never seen that text message before. What exactly did Ray Epps say to his nephew? Have prosecutors reviewed that text? The New York Times doesn't tell us. Nor does the New York Times tell us whether Ray Epps has had any contact with any federal agencies in the period before January 6th. That's the core question. But they didn't ask it. Why is that? Seems like a major omission. But don't ask more questions, commands the New York Times. Otherwise, Ray Epps may be killed by Mexican drug cartels. Mexican drug cartels? What do they have to do with this? We're not sure. But according to the paper, there are people who have heard, quote, some cartel members talking about killing Mr. Epps. Right, because the drug cartels are committed Trump voters and they feel betrayed by Ray Epps. Maybe they're queuing on people, too. This is highly strange. And if you're going to spend more than a year looking into January 6th and you ignore this, then it's more than strange. <laughs> it's an indictment of your motives. Darren Beatty is one of the reasons this piece was first written. He's the editor of Revolver News, which published the first stories about Ray Epps. Obviously, the New York Times is very worried about his reporting. We're happy to have him join us tonight. Darren, thanks so much for coming on. What, what do you make of this? Well, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, just let's take all of this in. The one person caught repeatedly urging people into the Capitol as early as January 5th is the one person of all of the January 6th riot participants that the New York Times just happens to write this ultra sympathetic puff piece for. Uh, it's it's quite remarkable. And to look at the piece itself, as you uh, suggested in, in your um, in your intro, there are some real glaring 
omissions uh, from a journalistic standpoint to have access to this guy. Number one, in the entire piece, there is no blanket explicit denial on the on part of Epps to have been associated with any intelligence group, DHS, JTTF, military intelligence, so forth. Just reiterates his um, very legal denial of being involved with law law enforcement. Number two, the piece destri- describes Epps as a Trump supporter. He just went to went to D.C. to defend Trump and to attend the speech on a last minute uh, a thing with his son to attend Trump's speech on election fraud. The only thing is Epps didn't attend the speech. Epps travels all the way from Arizona to D.C., this big Trump supporter, and he doesn't even attend the speech. Instead, he fixates on this bizarre mission to get everyone to go into the Capitol. And by the way, he just happens to be hanging out right by the initial breach point near the Peace Monument on the west side of the Capitol before the Proud Boys even get there. And thirdly, where did Ray Epps get this idea This whole piece doesn't explore that question at all. Here's the one person calling for everyone to go in. Where did you get that idea, Ray Epps? Did it occur to you out of nowhere? Did someone tell you to do it? This piece, shockingly, does not explore that question at all, which is the paramount question that's really the animating, the alleged animating focus of January 6th committee. So this is so dirty. Ray Epps is behavior was so egregious that he was one of the first 20 on the FBI most wanted list. He was featured as a star in the New York Times' own documentary on January 6th. And now he's unarrested, unindicted, and he's the only January 6th writer about whom Adam Kinsinger has nice things to say and the New York Times yep. is writing puff pieces about. He's the smoking gun attack. of the entire Fed's erection. Well, uh, and, and they go crazy when you ask simple questions like, what was the role of federal law enforcement or the military in this day? And it's been our experience that when they won't answer a question and call you names for asking it, maybe there's something there. I appreciate you're pulling this thread relentlessly. Darren Beatty, thank you. Thank you. So leading Democrats knew that Joe Biden was literally senile when he ran for president in 2020. They knew it. There's a lot of evidence of that. We're getting into some detail on that later. But at this point, they're pretending they didn't know, and they can't believe how old Joe Biden is, and now they're running away from him. So candidates, challengers to Joe Biden, are now emerging. And you will never guess who one of them is, the last person who should be running for president. We will reveal that person's name after the break. Wow. Okay, so that was a pretty strong critique of the New York Times article. So definitely read the New York Times article. And uh, Tucker Carlson, Darren Beatty definitely point out some weaknesses in the New York Times article. And then with regard to the vaccine that caused some heart damage, it was infinitesimal number of people who may have suffered heart damage as a result of the vaccine. And so you have to compare the benefits conveyed by the vaccine with possible damage or definite damage caused by the vaccine. So from my understanding of the literature, it's like a thousand to one benefits compared to damage. Some people die because they wear a seatbelt, but overall seatbelts save lives. But yeah, there are individuals who would not have died if they had not been wearing a seatbelt. So those are my quick reactions. I've been watching 
an excellent Australian TV series. It's called uh, Mystery Road Origin. And it's about a half Aborigine, half white police officer. And so Origin goes back to his start as a police detective in rural outback Australia. One of the first questions this character gets asked in episode one, it's a series made by the ABC, the national broadcaster in Australia, is who your mob, right? Who your mob? So who's your people, right? Who's your family? Who are your ancestors? Who's your in-group? And it's just a great question, all right? To me, that's, that's the fundamental question to ask to understand the world around us. So rather than seeing us as individuals born into a world with certain inalienable, God-given natural rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, don't look at, at the world through the prism primarily of individuals. Look at the world primarily through the prism of mob or people or ancestry. And the largest in-group that many of us can possibly belong to in some sort of coherent fashion is your nation. Right, so we have various loyalties, right? We should have, in normal cases, loyalties to our family, to our extended family, to our particular people, to our ancestors, to the, the religion that we were raised in. So who your mob? Who's your mob? Who's your people, right? It, it's such a profound way of understanding life and a traditional way of understanding life. When you want to know about someone, you ask who's their family. If you're thinking of marrying someone, you want to know who's their mother, who's their father, who are their siblings, who are their relatives, who's their mob, who's their people. So rather than looking at people as individuals who use the kingly power of reason to make decisions and to decide what is right and what is wrong, said understand that people are all part of an ancestry or all part of a mob. And it's not so much that we're just freely choosing to do X, Y, Z. We are profoundly driven by our genetics, by our, our culture, by our upbringing, and by all sorts of things that we can't even articulate, but we got with our mother's milk, right? That we, we inherited patterns from our ancestors. Like religious zealotry and extremism runs in my ancestry. Uh, rebellion runs in uh, my ancestry. Michael Dyer was... Uh, a famous Irish rebel against the British crown. He repeatedly escaped from British jails. He was eventually sent to Australia. I visited his grave in Sydney, and I can feel his blood running through through my veins, that rebellious attitude towards authority. All right, I've been shaped in ways I can't understand by my ancestors. So... If you want to know who I am, know who's my mob. You can't understand me without understanding my father, without understanding his father, without understanding my siblings, my, my mother, their family. Right? We all come from a particular group. And the things that we learn from that group and the genetics that we inherit from that group profoundly shape us far more than our own individual rational choices, generally speaking. All right, we think that we're rationally choosing, right? When you live life right now in the present, you feel like you have free will, that you can just go out into the world and you can make decisions. You're a free agent. But when you look back on your life, it looks much more like uh, things no, are Joe determined. Biden can't serve a second term. He can't serve this term. He is senile. His family knows that. They've known it since before the 2020 campaign. They told other people they knew it. His staff knows it. 
What you see on TV is absolutely real. And if he wasn't doped up, he wouldn't be able to speak at all. That's true. And again, everybody knows it. He can't say that out loud. His advisors don't want him to because the second he does, he's a lame duck. But in real life, there's going to be another Democrat on the ticket in 2024. So who's it going to be? Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom thinks it could be him. Can you imagine? He's trying to make himself famous outside of his collapsing state before 2024. And that's why he just aired this advertisement in the state of Florida. Watch. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom is under attack in your state. The Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. <laughs> yeah. yeah, A lot of people are moving from Florida to California. It's hilarious. The left is for free speech, turns out. So the whole point of this was to attack Ron DeSantis, who Democrats see as a major threat in the coming election. On Wednesday, Newsom again attacked Ron DeSantis. Watch this. Teachers were under assault because, God forbid, teachers were homosexual. And somehow people presupposed that they would be grooming our kids. That was a debate in the 1970s. The press secretary for the governor of this one of our largest states said people like me that were opposed to, and I know a lot of people are offended by saying it's not really a don't say gay bill, but referred to those that opposed it in Florida as groomers. This guy, he's, he's just unbelievable. But in the end, Gavin Newsom's not going to become the Democratic nominee because he says mean things about Florida. He would become the Democratic nominee because of all the great things he's done in his own state, which he runs, California, our biggest state. So how's he done there? How has Gavin Newsom done in the state of California? Adam Kroll can assess that because he's from California, lived there his whole life. He's the author of the new book, Everything Reminds Me of Something, Advice, Answers, But No Apologies. It's out now. You'll see Adam Kroll's show. He joins us tonight. Adam, thanks for coming on. So we, we just wanted to go right to an expert on the subject. You live under the reign of Gavin Newsom, former mayor of San Francisco, now your governor. How's he doing? Should he be president? It's insane that he's talking about freedom. The guy shut down churches. He shut down beaches. He shut down outdoor dining. Gas is seven bucks a gallon. He shut down schools. He had mask mandates. My kid went to school but had to eat outside. He had to eat lunch outside even during a rainstorm because they wouldn't let them into the cafeteria. They arrested a guy who was in the Santa Monica Bay paddle boarding alone because they shut the beaches down. And this dictator is talking about freedom. It's so insane, but kind of a bigger picture. And I think we're on the same page here, Tucker. California votes for this guy. Now, this guy makes my skin crawl. He's a sociopath and there's something clearly wrong with him. Like I bet oh, yeah. cats hate him because they can sense what he is. But there's something about California. It's like Nancy Pelosi, Newsom, Adam Schiff. These are some of the worst people on the planet. What's up with people in California? You should, they're repugnant people. I know they're in your party, but they're horrible people. Why are you voting for them? Now, look, I, I, I'm not saying that Gavin Newsom is actually Fidel Castro's son, but he does remind me a lot of Justin Trudeau. Is that just me? 
They're both skating by on the same publicist, tailor, and makeup artist. And it's so exactly. insane <laughs> that because we're basing our election on hair, it's, it's, really, it's really insane. He's totally incompetent. He came on my podcast like eight years ago. He made the mistake of sitting in with me long form. I absolutely destroyed him. If anyone wants a laugh... Uh, please check it out on YouTube. But the idea that he would be going after DeSantis and talking about freedom is insane. And also the idea that we've been arguing over Biden. Is he going to run again? Is he going to run again? I kept going, no. They kept going, he may run. I go, he can barely walk. How's this going to work? No, that's exactly right. Someone should sit down with Obama and Susan Rice and Ron Klain and the people who are actually running the government right now and ask, like, how can, is this the democracy you talk about? Because it's not. Um, Adam Carolla, thanks so much for coming on. And by the way, I recommend to anyone who hasn't heard it, your exchange with Gavin Newsom is, is unbelievable. So, appreciate it. Good to see you. Thanks, Dr. So this show has come to Iowa for a couple days, giving a speech at the Family Leadership Summit in Des Moines. Lots of people who are running for president are swinging through Iowa. We thought we would assess the field. We're going to stream that speech live on Fox Nation tomorrow, Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern. Go to foxnation.com for access. So here's a pretty amazing story, like so many of the really interesting stories completely ignored. Grand Forks Air Force Base, Gavin one of the most sensitive, sensitive military installations in the country. Weirdly, the Chinese government just bought land right next to it. Now, why would the Chinese government want land next to a military base in North Dakota. Hmm, we have some thoughts straight ahead. Okay, so we've got a monkeypox problem, and through absolutely no fault of their own, this virus is just sweeping through the gay community, and a very courageous lawmaker is speaking out. All right, San Francisco is veering towards a public health mess on monkeypox, and it's through absolutely no fault of their own. Right, just because they like to participate in gay orgies and have sex with random strangers and do a lot of meth while they're doing it, absolutely no fault of their own. They have, they have a constitutional right to go out there and have 50 men you know, railroad them. Right, so a Bay Area lawmaker, right, very distinguished California State Senator Scott Weiner, right, he's the one who managed to move knowingly infecting people with HIV. He, he courageously sponsored legislation to move that from a felony to a misdemeanor. And he's warning us that San Francisco is veering towards a public health mess over monkeypox because the San Francisco Department of Public Health is running low on monkeypox vaccines and it will shutter its clinic at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital until more supply arrives. He says this shortage is especially troubling given the disease's growing prevalence in San Francisco. Why is monkeypox so prevalent in San Francisco? Why is it so prevalent among people who participate, men who participate in gay orgies and do a lot of meth at the same time? And through absolutely no fault of their own. Right? California is the second highest number of confirmed monkeypox cases. So it's incredibly easy to not catch monkeypox, don't participate in gay orgies. But, uh, to, to Scott Weiner, the distinguished senator, it's just something wrong with America's public health system. It's broken, right? We, we can't ask people to desist from participating in gay orgies, all right? We can't 
ask people at a particularly delicate time in public health to kind of go easy on random hookups with strangers. Now, our leading public intellectual, Ken Brown, is speaking out on the case for crime. You know, a thief stole an old lady's purse and some bystander tackled the thief. You know, that brings me pleasure, it brings me joy. But systemically, statistically, to attack the problem of crime by funding police through instituting stop and frisk policies, instituting curfews, instituting uh, more jail time. All of these things have consequences, and it's kind of like killing the wolves. You know, we civilized North America, we killed off the wolves, and now we don't have wild wolves. And everyone wants to slay the dragon, but what happens when we kill all the dragons? We live in a disenchanted world. We need monsters. We need darkness. We need friction. We need untamed jungles, the urban jungle. We need dirty streets to an extent. Now, I don't believe they should be on you know, the New York, D.C. coastline, but we need something like that. And, and the more we suppress it, the more we eliminate it, there's a sexual corollary when we try to eliminate all sexual darkness by statistically, analytically deciphering and describing and labeling every human sexuality, every manifestation of it. And clearly drawing, drawing these lines, I see these, uh, this, these drag queenification of America. What does it produce to take what used to be a hidden fetish enjoyed by men where they would dress up in women's clothing discreetly, you know, uh, secretly, and now it's out in the public. What is the effect? It's sterilization. When you remove the magic and the mystery and the hidden nature, the shamanic, when you take all the insides and you make them the outside, when you remove the esoteric and you make it exoteric, you kill the mystery that makes life worth living. If you know everything that's going to happen, the human soul, the human spirit, you can call it a kind of you know, you could say it's luciferic, but I think in, um, I don't know, I, I think maybe maybe that is accurate. But there's something in the human spirit that wants to escape. The so this is Ken Brown speaking out in defense of crime. He thinks it's just inconceivable that we, we'd want to have communities free, free of crime. I mean, I think that's absolutely nuts. I've lived in communities free from crime. It's beautiful. All right. I go back to Australia, largely free of crime. I go to Sydney, one of the safest cities in the world, largely free from crime. I used to live in the Napa Valley, right? A place largely free of crime. There are all sorts of uh, parts of America that are largely free of crime. The, these areas tend to run to certain demographics, and they're largely free from crime. Life is good there. Life is beautiful there. And so to make a video in defense of crime and saying that we should be careful about uh, trying to trying to dial back crime. I mean, that's absolutely insane thinking. It's just so anti-human. It's just uh, verging on the incomprehensible. Like, like, how could someone come out and, and try to try to make the case that we shouldn't oppose crime? Ivana Trump, the first wife of Donald Trump, the mother of his first three children, passed away today in New York City. Fox's Trace Gallagher has that story for us tonight. Hey, Trace. 
Hey, Tucker, New York police got a 911 wellness check, and when they arrived at the Upper East Side apartment, they found Ivana Trump unresponsive. Police say there are no signs of foul play, but they did reveal that Ivana's body was found, quoting here, in close proximity to the bottom of a staircase. Both police and the medical examiner will now investigate whether she fell down the stairs. Now, by all accounts, Ivana Trump was smart, glamorous, and very influential, not to mention a fixture in both the New York and national tabloids for decades. Today, her son, Eric Trump, said his mother was, quoting, a world-class athlete, a radiant beauty, and caring mother and friend. She was also the mother of Ivana, Ivanka, and Donald Trump Jr., and often took full credit for raising what she called great kids. Of course, Ivana Trump famously called her ex-husband the Donald. And although their 1992 divorce was acrimonious, the two remained very friendly over the years. And during Donald Trump's White House run, Ivana said she was both a supporter and an advisor. She died at the age of 73. Tucker. Chris Gallagher for us tonight. Thanks so much for that sad yep. story. The rise of China is the most important story, not just of the moment, but of this age. It pretends a reshuffling of everything, the end of the old assumptions and the beginning of something brand new and very, very different. Nothing is more important than this. So with that in mind, you should know that China has already purchased more than 200,000 acres of farmland in the United States, and likely much more than that. Now a Chinese company is buying hundreds more acres right next to a sensitive U.S. military base. Watch this. This is Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota, home of some of the nation's most sensitive technology, including the RQ-4 Global Hawk surveillance drone. And this property sits just about 20 minutes down the road, more than 300 acres of prime farmland. Earlier this year, three North Dakotans who owned parcels here sold this land for millions of dollars to a subsidiary of a Chinese company that says it wants to build a corn milling plant. Hmm. So would this be allowed in China? Could a U.S. government-connected company buy land next to a Chinese military installation? Well, no. The Chinese government would just say no. We have a lot of problems saying no to anything in this country, anything at all. And it's not as if it's not a problem. It is. Pentagon officials understand that. Air Force Major Jeremy Fox wrote a memo in April, quote, some of the most sensitive elements of Grand Forks exist with the digital uplinks and downlinks inherent with unmanned air systems and their interaction with space-based assets. So collecting that data, Fox said, quote, would present a costly national security risk causing grave damage to United States strategic advantages, end quote. But they did it anyway because nobody said no. So what does this mean? Gordon Chang is a senior fellow at the Gatestone Institute. He's author of The Great U.S.-China Tech War, and we're happy to have him join us now. Gordon Chang, thanks so much for coming on. So is this what it looks like? It's certainly what it looks like. You know, there's two things here, Tucker. First of all, the Chinese are extremely aggressive. But the more important story is that we're letting them do this. We're letting exactly. them buy a parcel 12 miles from a sensitive military facility where with passive listening equipment, they can figure out almost everything we're doing with those drones. This just is impossibly stupid. 
Why isn't there any leader in this country who can say no? No, China, you're not allowed to fund Harvard. You're not allowed to send us tens of thousands of students every year who might wind up undermining the United States. And no, you're not allowed to buy our natural resources, like our farmland. Like, why, why will no one say that? I don't know, Tucker. But, you know, this isn't the only similar incident. There's one in Texas near Laughlin Air Force Base where a former Chinese army officer is buying a big parcel of land. And, you know, it really is symptomatic in the United States that we are not stopping this because there are so many problems, not only espionage, but there are so many other problems with regard to Chinese purchases of farmland. Right. And, and residential real estate. I mean, one of the reasons prices are high is because of foreign investment. The Chinese have been very clever in immediately calling racism and any pushback against them. They learned that from us and they seem to be exploiting it fairly effectively. Well, they got a lot of help because you have President Biden in his first hours in office actually issued an executive order on xenophobia. You know, and that's been a constant theme of the Biden administration. So, you know, the, that is very much supportive of Chinese communist propaganda. Say, oh, you can't criticize China because it'll hurt people like me, Chinese Americans. This is really wrong, Tucker. You know, it's just from the very top to the very bottom. This government of ours is allowing China to run riot, not only over American farmland, but as you say, American academic institutions, our companies, you name it. Yeah, it's hard to take... Harvard seriously once you realize they are paid for by China. Uh, Gordon Chang, I appreciate all that you've done on this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tucker. So Joe Biden, to the extent he actually exists, is flying to Saudi Arabia on Friday. He's there to beg the Saudis for oil. But he could be talking about other things since he's going to be in Saudi Arabia. Congressman Matt Gates represents a district where some of his constituents were killed by Saudi Arabia. Maybe Biden could bring that up. Congressman Gates joins us after the break. Oh boy, Congressman Matt Gates! Wow, how how exciting is that? Really want to hear what uh, Congressman uh, Matt Gates has to say. And I was listening to some good stuff from Paul Gottfried earlier today. So let's play some Gottfried here. He says the South was not defeated intellectually. Uh, uh, others others of that ilk uh, uh, to to be to be very impressive. Um, the, pro- the problem is that the South will not defend itself anymore. Um, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that even the populist movement has distinctly Southern roots. Um, I don't think it know, does. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement basically of rural areas, um, the white working class, uh, which extends across the country and is present in, in the South as well as in other regions, maybe disproportionately present in the South. But there, there, there's, there, there really is nothing peculiarly Southern about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'd be very surprised even if somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's very much a, you know, a Georgia populist on the right, would wave a Confederate flag. Um, she probably would be destroyed politically if she did, but the left would make sure. And the conservative movement would, of course, destroy her because the conservative movement does what the left wants uh, in terms of degrading the South. You know, that's that's a given. Um, so uh, I'm not sure I, I would. They, they are. Dixie is defeated. A lot of this self-defeated. Um, I, I think one of the problems, you know, that I see as a political problem. The, the, the South was Dixiecrat politically. It was Democratic. It was Southern Democratic. Uh, what happened was the, Democrat, the, Southern, the Southerners lost control of the Democratic Party. The, the, the Southerners lose their ideological control of the Democratic Party or even their right to maintain an independent regional presence. So what, what, is, what is going to happen is they join the Republican Party, which was disastrous. 
uh, because it was not that the Republican Party moved to the right because the Southern whites joined. It's because the Republican Party in the South became the party of Tom Tillis, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, right, um, and Tim Scott. And so <laughs> that's what the Republican Party is, right? Uh, it, it's, it's simply a, uh, you know, a branch of the, nor- of the Northeastern Republican Party that they landed up joining. But it's even worse because it has like this syrupy, pseudo-moralistic presence when at the same time, a lot of these Southern Republicans wind up selling out their constituents and uh, more or less using religion as a smokescreen for their true mm-hmm. intentions. They're not even allowed to do that anymore. Well, that was they traditionally just leave it when I was there. Unless they, want to, unless they want to say they're evangelicals who support Israel, that they might get away with. Anti-abortion. The anti-abortion. anti-abortion. Holy, like, yeah, holy grail. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think the anti-abortion movement in parts of the country is like football. It has become a substitute for taking other positions. Without question. Yeah, and I, I think the left is right about that. Absolutely. You know, and uh, you know, if, if you're anti-abortion, it probably does mean something else that you're not allowed uh-huh. to express because uh-huh. of political correctness. Yep. So far, but even that may become a no-no thing because the left is really going after the anti-abortion people now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like one by one, they've been driven away from positions. This is the last one you can hold. You know, you let you be let you be anti-abortion. You know, it's interesting because the the anti-abortion movement has been allowed to exist as a national presence by the left because they've been holding this national right to life thing in D.C. Uh, since the '70s, and it attracts all these people. And yet, there's never been an insurrection or somebody who yeah. goes around saying or doing crazy, violent things. And if a group of gun owners went to D.C. every year, there would be a plant to do all sorts of crazy stuff, guaranteed. Right. Uh, and uh, th- then there would never be another gun owners march again. But the left has allowed the anti-abortion movement to exist because, obviously, to an extent, it does not mind it because it's able to play against the anti-abortion movement on the left. And part of the reason the left has gone so uh, intense on the abortion issue to the point of now supporting abortion throughout pregnancies because they've you know been feeding off of the anti-abortion movement. So though the left, to it, bizarre as it sounds, it does not mind the anti-abortion movement as much as it minds the anti-gun movement, excuse me, as much as it minds the right. gun segment movement or the anti-gay movement or even the anti-trans movement. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, but what they did not expect to see happen, but it may, you know, they think it could aid them is the reversal of Roe v. Wade, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Mitch McConnell regrets that it was reversed because it was something he could run on that made it. Down. You know, it's Without a doubt. typical uh, Republican non-issue until now. Mm-hmm. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, folks, if you have a reasonable, responsible question. Or con- okay, if you have a reasonable, responsible question. You get out and you create a crowd. Get up in the face of some Congress people. We kick. The domestic enemies are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with their allies in the Congress. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem. The NYPD is reporting 28 shootings from just over the weekend. That's a 600% increase. We're seeing the same thing here in Los Angeles. Our homicides have been up 32%. I applaud Eric Garcetti for doing what he's done. We've got four blocks in Seattle that you just saw pictures of that is more like a block party. We had two murders, multiple shootings, rape, robbery, assault. We need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. We need a revolution. In order to overthrow this system, bring a whole new communist world into being. Fundamentally transform the country. We ain't about to wait until the next election. We're about to go get that motherfucker. Yeah, no police mob rule coming to a town near you from Steve Scalise. Pretty powerful excerpt there. And Kevin Michael Grace is doing a great show today. Two. You know, there's an old joke. Very old joke. Going back to vaudeville, about two bald men fighting over a comb. Whenever I read about wither conservatism, that's what comes to mind. Conservatism, I think, the conservative movement, to be more precise, can be understood only in an American sense, and I think only in a post-World War II American sense. Essentially, it was a coalition of left and right in America to fight the Cold War. The left agreed uh, to be on board with containment, and the right agreed to, well, surrender on everything else. And I suppose it worked uh, because the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. 
But when that happened, there was no longer any reason for a conservative movement. Uh, the America of 1991 was very different indeed from the America of oh, 1946. Uh, but the conservatives never really seem to acknowledge that. They have a problem with time and change. All these people carrying on about Ronald Reagan to this day. Ronald Reagan last uh, ran for public office in 1984, which was uh, 38 years ago, uh, which means that the youngest person in the United States who ever voted for Ronald Reagan would be 56 years old now. The communists had been vanquished, at least in, well, most places in the world, and socialism uh, was finished. And so war dividend, peace dividend perhaps? No, search for a new enemy. And that search, first we had China, then we had Islam. No, not Islam, uh, because that would be Islamophobic and conservatives are nothing if not uh, in favor of diversity and multiculturalism. Um, so I guess we have uh, Putin now. And oh, let's pretend that um, Russia is the same as the USSR. And we have the enemies of democracy and those evil forces peddling uh, misinformation and even worse, disinformation. So it seems to me that histories of the conservative movement are really, uh, it's like arguing over uh, ownership of a rotting corpse. But here we go. This is from Steve Saylor's column. Tacky's magazine called The Right Read. Oh, I'm so tired of that cliche. So, so tired. I know Pat Buchanan has been guilty of it, as have many others. Uh, he reviews a book by Matthew Continetti called The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And he's, he relates, in Continetti's telling, the good guys are, unsurprisingly, the elitists, such as his in-laws, the crystals and himmel farms. The bad guys are the populists. But he admits the latter annoying habit of often turning out to be more empirically right about the issues than their betters. For example, Continenti writes, quote, the GOP autopsy released in the spring of 2013 counseled Republicans to support the legalization of illegal immigration. Steve Saylor, a contributor to paleoconservative journals, put forward an alternative to the Jeb Bush RNC autopsy strategy of outreach to minority groups and young people. Saylor called his approach in reach. Because Republicans grew primarily from white voters, especially married white voters with families, Saylor reasoned that the party should seek to boost turnout among its core constituency rather than fritter away political capital on minority groups whose objections to the GOP were in all likelihood insurmountable. Saylor's thesis found empirical support when election analyst Sean Trend examined the missing white voters in the 2012 election, unquote. Well, why were there missing white voters? I first asked myself question, this question in 2004. Imagine that you are white working class and your options for president or George W. Bush uh, or John Kerry. Why would anyone in the white working class want to vote for either of these men? Okay, let's uh, cut over to Tucker Carlson here and talking about the invasion at the border. Record numbers of illegal aliens are continuing to stream across the United States border, which is effectively open. You're seeing footage on your screen right now of illegals from around the world storming the Yuma sector around 2 a.m. Yuma reports more than 1,000 arrests at the border every single day. Blake Masters is running for Senate in that state, in Arizona, and he's promising to end this invasion, which is what it is. 250,000 illegals cross this border every month. This is an invasion. We know what to do. We need to finish Trump's wall. We need five times more border patrol. And we need technology to lock this border down. If we don't do these things right now, we're not going to have a country. Blake Masters, as we just told you, is running for Senate as a Republican from the state of Arizona. He joins us tonight. Blake Masters, thanks so much for coming on. Republicans in Arizona haven't, for the last couple cycles, talked this way, been this open about what's happening in your state to your border. Why are you being as blunt as you are? 
because it's a national security issue, Tucker. Uh, most Republicans are scared because if you speak out about it, they come after you. You know, I thought that ad that right. you just showed was a pretty good ad, maybe even a little yeah. understated. But man, journalists didn't like it. And so they phoned some experts oh. and the experts said, Blake Masters is uh, encouraging political violence. I'm, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> There's an invasion happening at our southern border. There's literal caravans of hundreds, sometimes thousands of illegal aliens just freely streaming across. But Tucker, if you call this out, oh, well, you must be racist. You're not allowed to notice. You're not allowed to talk about what's actually happening. If you disagree with the left, they will call you violent. And Tucker, because you're violent, oh, it sounds like you need to be disarmed and debanked and unpersoned. That's exactly right. And by the way, I, I, in point of fact, the polls show that most Hispanic voters don't like this any more than anybody else does. It's appalling. You can't have a country under these circumstances. But why do you think journalists are so intent on keeping the borders open, changing the population of the country, making America as volatile and crazy as unchecked immigration always makes any country? Like, why are they for that? I don't I don't think they uh, believe in America. I don't think Biden believes in America. That's why under Joe yeah. Biden's leadership, uh, the southern borders become a welcome mat for the cartels. You know, the cartels, they're the only people who have gotten richer under Joe Biden, except, of course, for Nancy Pelosi. Um, Tucker, nobody has the right to come to America. That's a privilege. But every American citizen has the right to public order. And, you know, the situation at the border, it's a pilot program for everything the Democrats plan to do to the whole country, right? Completely abandon the rule of law and call you crazy if you complain about it. But most people just want the law to be enforced. Unfortunately, the Democrats are the party of lawlessness and intimidation, right? They'll intimidate anyone who dares to speak out. Well, we have to speak out. We have to take back power right now. Otherwise, the Democrats will put a gag on your mouth and call it democracy. I mean, at some point, things start to fall apart, right? I mean, people watching this, American citizens might say, well, if anyone from around the world can just come here, ignore our federal laws, and then get rewarded with benefits for it, why am I following the law? Why am I the last dummy obeying the law? Exactly. And I think the Democrats want it this way, right? They don't care about crime. Just look at these crimes that these illegals yeah. commit when they come here, right? Just in Ohio. A Guatemalan illegal alien raped a 10-year-old girl. I mean, this is anarchy. This is lawlessness. And Biden and the Democrats don't care. They don't want to deport these people. That's criminal. I agree with that. Blake Masters running for the United States Senate in Arizona. Good luck. Great to see you. We'll be right Thank back. You, Okay, so I noticed that it was uh, Baked Alaska who was calling out Ray Epps for being a Fed. It was Baked Alaska who was interviewing Ray Epps January 5. And then when Epps talked about encouraging illegal behavior we need to go into the capital and uh, tucker and and darren Beatty had some good critiques of that new york times article so when i read the new york times article i admit i thought wow this is an important article it kind of debugs the conspiracy theorists like darren Beatty and tucker carlson then i listened to tucker carlson and darren Beatty, and i think whoa they they substantially debug the New York Times article. So here I am stuck in the middle with you and Kevin Michael Grace. Both men despise the white working class, um, despise people who were essentially not talking about like the 2004 election. Like Indeed. Uh, but back uh, to Sailor's Review, uh, the book is a capacious, exhaustive and far more objective than could reasonably be expected from a hereditary combatant in a field, conservative opinion, journalism, politics, that is so bitter because the stakes are so high, or perhaps it's because the stakes are so low, as the joke goes. Continetti is the son-in-law of William Crystal, co-founder of the Weekly Standard, and grandson-in-law of Irving Crystal, co-founder of the Public Interest, both now defunct, but in their day, influential neoconservative journals. If you're wondering who is included in the right, I can quantitatively summarize Continetti's book by listing the pundits who appear on the most pages. 
William F. Buckley, founder of National Review, is the central figure in the right, showing up on 107 pages, according to the index. I didn't see too much in the book that's new about that legendary personality. So here's a story about WFB that I heard only recently and only from one source, but a reasonably reliable one. WFB, who had won 13% of the vote in an entertaining Conservative Party run for mayor in New York City in 1965, intensely wanted to run for president in 1968. If Jack Kennedy could be president at age 43, why not him? He was surprised and frustrated to find that his own inner circle didn't take him seriously as presidential timber. Uh, I am one of the generation who grew up uh, reading Bill Buckley. I was introduced to the conservative movement uh, by him. I first saw him in TV, uh, then started reading his books and subscribed to National Review. This was when I was, what, 13 years old. Funny thing about Bill Buckley, nobody reads him anymore, and he is not an influence on anyone. It's as if he has vanished. Uh, whereas uh, people that Buckley expelled from the movement, such as uh, Sam Francis, uh, to give uh, one example, or Pat Buchanan, are still read, are still studied, are still influential. Uh, back to Sailor. But WFB, despite his high opinion of himself, inherited wealth, culture, taste, and snobbery, doesn't particularly fit Continenti's organizing dichotomy of elitism versus populism. For instance, when running for mayor, Buckley had done best among outer borough Archie Bunkers. Continenti notes, quote, Buckley had uncovered quite by accident the future electoral base of the Republican Party, white voters without college degrees. This discovery put Buckley in an odd position. He was an ambivalent populist. In fact, he rejected the label, but he could not deny that the establishment that National Review poked, prodded, and lampooned was liberal in outlook. He wrote that he would sooner live in a society governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than in a society governed by the 2,000 faculty members of Harvard University. Had he really meant it? Or was Buckley's anti-elitism really just as anti-liberalism in democratic guise? It was a question he never really answered. I suppose you could regard uh, Bill Buckley as one of those patricians, although <clears throat> he wasn't a patrician. Uh, he was uh, Irish origin to begin with, and his father was nouveau riche, who made his money as an oil man. That's not what Americans would consider patrician. Here's a funny story about Bill Buckley. His uh, brother-in-law, uh, Brent Bozell, was from Oklahoma, and Buckley made a, a visit, a young man, uh, to Oklahoma with uh, Bozell, and they went into some store, and uh, Buckley angered uh, the shopkeeper who said to him something like, get out of here with your phony English accent. Uh, Saylor writes, the main weakness of the right is that Continenti's history of conservative opinion journalism is a little too impartial. The most, second most cited journalist in the right is Pat Buchanan, who shows up on 42 pages. Buchanan is the designated populist bad guy at the second half of the book, following Joe McCarthy in the first half. But unlike McCarthy, who self-destructed in a big gay conservative fiasco, when his chief of staff, Roy Cohn, got mad at the U.S. Army for drafting his dear friend, David Shine, Pat doesn't go away. It's almost as if he was onto something when, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, he began suggesting new policies for a post-Cold War world, rather than the U.S. just keep on keeping on by expanding NATO like respectable conservatives demanded. This big gay conservative fiasco, that's a reference to uh, Roy Cohn. I've read a lot about Roy Cohn. And that uh, circle and uh, David Sheen, or Shine, who uh, he seemed to be quite enamored with, uh, was not homosexual. In fact, uh, David Shine married... Miss Universe of 1955, a Swedish woman named Helvi Rombin, and they had six children uh, together. So no flies on David Shine. Uh, but back to Steve Saylor. One reason Buchanan's career has lasted so long despite neocon hatred is that he's a terrific guy. Lots of mainstream liberal journalists are ideologically closer to the neocons than they are to Pat, but who do you think they would rather have a drink with? One of the last memories of my father from before his debilitating stroke at age 94 was him reading the copy of Buchanan's Suicide of a Superpower that Pat sent me, complete with his helpful post-it notes and handwritten comments on the pages where he quoted me. My father was impressed. Thanks, Pat. Third, with 41 mentions, is Russell Kirk, author of The Conservative Mind. It's hard to be mad at the lovable Kirk, who's a sort of nice northern Ignatius J. Riley. But Continenti can't overlook the slanderous charge of dual loyalty that Kirk made in 1988 when he joked, quote, and not seldom has it seemed as if some eminent neoconservatives mistook Tel Aviv for the capital of the United States, unquote. The context here is that what Russell Kirk said 
uh, was a, a dig at Norman upon Horace's wife, uh, Midge Dechter. And Midge Dechter was a very powerful person within uh, right-wing or conservative circles, such that, such that Russell Kirk, who can uh, be argued to be the, the founder of the conservative movement, was expelled because Midge Dechter was furious. Uh, later, a, a religious uh, magazine uh, in the United States founded by a, a Lutheran priest, a, turn, a Lutheran pastor turned Catholic priest, had a fascinating discussion in the late 1970s that Robert Bork uh, engaged in. Uh, Richard John Newhouse is the fellow who uh, started this magazine. How degraded can the United States become? How evil, if you will, can it become before we don't have to be loyal to it? So this went through several rounds in the magazine, and finally, apparently, Midge Dechter said, enough. Got a story here out of Israel. So President Biden. Look at it. There he is shaking hands again with the air and being led to his seat. Tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. You can see it on Fox Nation. They see me streamed live. The ones you love, but don't go anywhere. Sean Hannity takes over right now. All right, Tucker, have a great speech tomorrow in Iowa. And thank you. Welcome to Hannity tonight. Warning, not just a downturn, but a full-fledged economic meltdown. All of it caused by the policies of Joe Biden and the new Green Deal climate cult agenda socialist Democrats. We're going to break it down, and you and your family need to act accordingly to protect yourselves. Now, Biden is failing so much, so fast, is so weak, so frail, so decrepit. Major Democrats, they appear closer than ever now to jumping ship. Look at your screen. Uh, Biden earlier today in Israel, as Tucker just showed you, literally appearing to not even know where to sit down. Where do I sit down? What do I do? Let me say hello. Let me shake the hand of the air. Hello, air. I mean, it's not the first time we see this. And once again, appearing totally disoriented, you know, thank goodness, as the Israeli prime minister was ever with him, helping him, dazed and confused. Now, these latest struggles come as Biden's agenda is imploding here at home because, yes, it was yet another. OK, so what other interaction that Joe Biden had, he he managed to hold himself back from shaking hands with an orthodox woman who who was a singer and here let's go look, look at this so uh, I'll replay it a little bit more so if you're really orthodox you don't you don't sing in public in front of men but uh, she's performatively orthodox. She's happy to sing in public in front of men, but she doesn't want to shake hands with, with any man, including the president of the United States. So a little awkward moment there for Joe Biden. His advisors didn't prepare him for Shomer Nigia. That means you don't touch any woman who's not an immediate family member or your spouse. And so they stopped because you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Midge Dechter. Taylor continues, of course, these days, after the populist Trump's foreign policy initiatives, everything has changed now, and not seldom, it has seemed as if some eminent neoconservatives mistook Jerusalem for the capital of the United States. Personally, I'm a member of the Larry David School of Social Criticism, who believes that no ethnic group should be off limits for being ribbed about the recurrent tendencies here, here. In fourth place, at 40 pages, is Continenti's grandfather-in-law, Irving Kristol. He was an entrepreneur of highbrow journalism, founding, with English poet Stephen Spender, the anti-communist leftist magazine Encounter Leftist, mm, which the CIA funded to show European intellectuals that you didn't have to be a communist to be smart and classy. Over time, the elder crystal led an exodus of old Trotskyites to the right, famously quipping that a neoconservative was a liberal who has been mugged by reality. During the 1960s, Crystal worked at Basic Books, where he published Social Scientists, alarmed by how LBJ's Great Society seemed to be having more deleterious effects on the crime and illeg illegitimacy rates than FDR's New Deal ever did. 
it's worth noting that when neoconservative was, neoconservatism was starting out, it tended to be not just obsessed with foreign policy, but also took an intelligent interest in domestic policy. Why are all us liberals suddenly being mugged in Central Park? Actually, Crystal said that despite living for decades overlooking Central Park, he'd never gone for a walk in it. Uh, to my mind, according to Saylor, the greatest neoconservative was crime-fighting political scientist James Q. Wilson, but he gets only three mentions in the right, which is longer on ideologues than on empiricists. I subscribe to all of the neoconservative magazines right from the very beginning, and I found that they were uniformly intelligent, and they were interested in problems that the politicians didn't seem to be interested in. For instance, why are all our great cities becoming hellholes, and what can we do about it? But then, I guess it would have been in the late 70s, uh, they became obsessed with this idea that the Soviet Union was going to uh, invade Western Europe, launch a first strike against the United States, and, uh, well, pretty much light up a storm about this whole business. And this is when uh, their focus shifted uh, to foreign affairs. And I bought into what they had to say. And later, when I realized I had been gulled, I was quite angry with them. Uh, it's been a long time since neoconservatives have had any concern with the way we live now. It's always Israel or the Kurds. Oh, the Kurds have been thrown under the bus to get uh, Turkey to stop its opposition uh, to a Baltic and Scandi uh, Scandinavian countries adjoining uh, NATO. Yeah, you're not going to hear anything about our brave Kurdish allies anymore. And now there's our brave uh, Ukrainian uh, allies. A sailor continues, my vague impression is that New York Jewish intellectuals weren't overwhelmingly interested in Israel until its exciting success in the 1967 Six-Day War launched a bandwagon effect among American fans. For instance, commentary editor Norman Quathoritz's second volume of memoirs, Breaking Ranks, which covers the 1960s, doesn't mention Israel until after the 1967 war, after which every up and down experienced by Israel suddenly became a matter of life and death to the elder Quathoritz, rather the way fans of the unstoppable Yankees care more this baseball season than do fans of the trailing Red Sox. Well, I remember the Six-Day War quite well, and I remember how exciting it was. I mean, a whole war in six days. Uh, it was uh, Novak uh, who wrote a book about this subject, that the interest in the Holocaust absolutely exploded after 1967. It wasn't something that was much talked about in America, even in American academia. But this is a phenomenon uh, that Saylor has noted. The further we get from any historical event, the more importance it uh, assumes, such with the Holocaust. Uh, Norman Podhoritz, a very, very clever man. Uh, his son, uh, Pod Jr., as they call him, not so clever. Uh, Irving Crystal, I would say a very clever man and a wise one. Uh, his uh, son, William Crystal, uh, not clever and not wise. I believe this is called regression to the mean. Jacob Heilbrunn, editor of the National Interest, yet another magazine founded by the Elder Crystal, argued in his 2008 book, They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, that neoconservatism as a movement was more or less a conspiracy hatched by Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Richard Nixon to lure avid new Israel rooters in New York into supporting America in the Cold War by portraying American strategic strength as crucial as hell. Well, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was another uh, clever uh, man. I remember the unsigned editorial in National Review in 1974, 75, something like that, addressed to this, the neocons, and it was called, I believe, coming in the water's fine. In retrospect, that was a dreadful error because the conservatives, uh, neoconservatives uh, proceeded to infiltrate the movement, hijack it, and expel anyone um, who wasn't as uh, bloodthirsty for war, war, war as they were. Uh, similarly, when a friend asked Press Baron Rupert Murdoch why he funded the Weekly Standard, which was edited by Continenti's father-in-law, William Crystal, 15 references in the index, even though Murdoch doesn't seem to care that much about Israel one way or another, the wily Australian magnate replied that when you were a foreigner trying to make it in American media business, you don't need all the Jews in New York on your side, but you do need some of them. Other pundits frequently cited in the right are L. Brent Fazell, Bill Buckley's very Catholic brother-in-law, 31, free market economist Friedrich Hayek, 29, and Milton Friedman, 23, columnist George Will, <laughs> George Will, <laughs> 20, Frank Meyer, National Review's chief theoretician of fusionism, uniting libertarians and traditionalists under the umbrella of anti-communism, 20, and Norman Podhoritz, 19. I'll tell you a story about Norman Podhoritz that uh, a friend of mine who was uh, a journalist was at a party in Manhattan 
there was another well-known uh, journalist there, this other well-known journalist uh, wanted to do a poll of the room on whether they thought that Pat Buchanan, Buchanan would win the New Hampshire primary. So this would be uh, 1996. And my first friend said to his friend, don't, don't, don't do this. Well, why not? It'll be fun. People are interested. If you do this, uh, Norman and Midge are going to walk out in a huff and it is going to cause a scandal. That's how afraid people are uh, were of this couple. And Saylor concludes an impressively even-handed book, The Right Ends, with a plea to dump Trump in 2024, along with an admission that conservatism still must incorporate the, quote, policy positions that Donald Trump forced upon the movement, a belief in secure borders and national sovereignty, an emphasis on the condition of working people without college degrees, a tough stance toward China, and a reluctance toward humanitarian interventions abroad, unquote. All very good, but I don't believe them. Not for a second. Neocons are incorrigible liars. You remember the Tea Party movement? Does anyone remember the Tea Party movement? Yeah, we're taking back America. We're going to transform the Republican Party. And so the Republican Party went to the Tea Party and said, we like the way you think. But, you know, we have a lot of experience in politics and mobilization, organization. So perhaps you could benefit by our expertise. Foolishly, the Tea Party said yes, and the movement was completely subsumed by the GOP, by Conservatism, Inc. These people will always, oh, of course, oh, we just love working people without college degrees. Yes, secure borders and national sovereignty and all the rest of it. They don't believe in any of it. What they do believe in, again, it's a mystery. As I've said many times before, it's a mystery religion. Uh, here's an interesting quote uh, in Steve Saylor's uh, blog at uns.com. Someone had asked his son, William, have the elite neocons been right about anything at all? Just visiting. Answers, I knew Bill well in our college days. Even then, he was a fan of Leo Strauss and openly advocated the so-called noble lie as a critical tool of public policy. I would often remind him, Bill, you only need to get caught lying one time and no one will ever trust anything you ever say again. He would just laugh and say, well, then I better not get caught. Welcome to the world of the neocons. Let's go to the chat. Okay, Kevin Michael Grace there on a new book on the history of the conservative movement in America. Let's go to the chat, as Kevin said. Luke, would you support a UN-backed Chinese civil order force being sent to the USA, like what Alex Jones and others have warned about and others from the conspiracy community? No, I would not support that, and I also don't think we need to worry about it. Luke, could you comment on the Johnny Monoxide interview with Ethan Ralph concerning TRS, The Right Stuff, the Mike Enoch Podcasting Network, as a cult and endorsing a left-wing view much like Richard Spencer? I started listening to the Johnny Monoxide interview. I gave it two or three attempts, and I just gave up. It was just too low IQ. But guess what? Every group is a cult. What we are participating in right now has some elements of a cult. Every group you participate in, a yoga class that you attend regularly, a Bible study that you attend regularly, a workplace, a softball team, every in-group has many elements of the cult, right? The only difference is the degree of intensity. But if you want to minimize the downsides of, of being blinkered, all right, so all bonds all right, or connections between people, all right? They, they bind people, but they also blind people, as Jonathan Haidt puts it. So you have strong connections within the Orthodox Jewish community or within the Orthodox Christian community or within the conservative community or within your local yoga community. Those ties will bind you, obviously, to other people, but they will also blind you. So for some people, they are able to both participate passionately with their in-group and also at times we have to stand outside of their in-group and see how what your in-group is saying and doing how that looks to outsiders so that's an important capability all right have some empathy for people on the outside looking in at your group 
and think about what they're talking about. And luckily, from Decoding the Gurus, academic Chris Cavanaugh discusses this very topic. Yeah. Um, what we mean by Galaxy Brain this is this tendency for people not to have a specific area of expertise that they stay um, focused on, but rather that they offer takes across a like whole cosmology of topics. There's there's almost nothing that they will refuse to offer opinions on, or and when they do so, they tend to not do it with epistemic humility, right? So they might have a core expertise, say like they're familiar with evolutionary biology, but they will then argue that because of the familiarity with evolutionary biology, that they can work from first principles to apply that uh, technical insight to a huge array of topics, maybe anything related to human social interaction, right? Which essentially makes you uh, capable of opining on, on any topic um, that relates to humans. Cultishness. You can think about this as encompassing the broad range of negative manipulation and social control techniques that you uh, probably associate with, with cults and, and traditional gurus. But it also, we use it to refer to this tendency to create very strong binary in-groups and out-groups, particularly where the in-group is a, a kind of select group of people who are able to see beyond mainstream narratives or are able to approach things in, intellectually rigorously, whereas the outside group are those who are to be treated you know, disdainfully, looked upon with suspicion, and obviously critics are, are lumped into that category. Um, in some respects, there's this willingness to acknowledge that there may be valid criticism of the positions that they want to advocate, but they will often say that they've never encountered it, that they've never encountered legitimate good faith criticism. So there's a hypothetical category of high quality good faith criticism, but unfortunately, the only thing that the gurus tend to encounter is low quality bad faith criticism, and that is not really worth their time. And eight others which I've listed in the article and you can also check out the recording of Chris introducing the project at the STOA. And I've linked that in the show notes below as well. Now, and so I tend to think that the personality factors, which are often on display in the content that people promote, it shouldn't be off limits. And like, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that you make fun of the way that people wear their hair or that kind of thing. But I am saying if you detect that somebody is self-aggrandizing and narcissistic in their content, that is a sign and something that you should note. It is not an ad hominem to note that Donald Trump is a narcissist and this skews how he presents things. So in the same way, I, I... Okay, so this is a topic I've often dealt with on the show. So the honorable forms of argumentation I've often maintained are to debate people on the basis of facts and logic, right? That's the only way that you can uh, punch holes in, in someone else's argument in an honorable fashion. But it frequently is worth talking about the person. It doesn't debunk their arguments, however, right? You don't debunk someone's arguments by belittling the, the person who makes them. But it can add perspective and depth to understand the person who is putting forward certain positions. I kind of think those things aren't, shouldn't be off limits. I, I, uh, that would be um, at least some of the response that I, I would offer. And... Um, I guess the very last thing is, you know, whether we want to increase our profile by going after uh, like big fish in order to get their audience and that kind of thing. I, I'm not saying that Matt and I are immune to audience dynamics and feedback. Like everybody online is, a, is to some extent susceptible to that. But 
primarily Matt and I's identities are tied to being academic. And we, you know, like everyone, we're trapped in the culture war and cannot escape it. But we tend to find, like, after we do a couple of episodes, which are like recently we did Joe Rogan and Robert Malone and Peter McCulloch, and we are quite content now to not talk about anti-vaxxers or the Rogan, you know, guests for, you know, the, the conceivable next while, as long as we can avoid it, because we'd rather, you know, not become enmeshed in that kind of thing. So, so pe- people who we criticize often view us as, you know, that we're, we're just targeted on taking down the Weinsteins or that kind of thing. But the reality is that we just find them like interesting examples of the, this guru template that we've documented, like in some in their case, almost a pro- prototypical example and our next episode will be on Robert Wright, who we like and we've interviewed, um, the author of Why Buddhism is True. Um, uh, and after that, we're going to do Jerome Lanier, or Lanier the, the kind of guy who says delete Facebook and that kind of thing. And nobody is asking us to completely on board with Ben Goldacre and Stuart Ritchie and the open science movement. I have a completely cynical view of politicians. Right? I, don't, I don't think that uh, political parties are all out for, you know, the, the, I don't, the thing is that my worldview is actually pretty cynical, that I expect institutions to make mistakes. I expect for people to make like wrong decisions and for um, like evidence to be not communicated within scientific bodies and uh, to take time, public health messaging to be confused. But these are all things that I factor in as like, that's the default. That's the baseline. There is never an institution that functions perfectly. There is never a political organization which I'll completely be happy. And uh, the chat says, if every group is a cult, every pundit is a guru. Yeah, but my point was not that every group is a cult. It's that every group has components, elements of, of a cult. And what's important is the degree of the intensity, all right? There are far more intense cults. And then your local yoga class, I, I would expect, is is a fairly relaxed and mild form of cult. Now, you can go to a church where the cult-like element is intense and heavy, or you can go to a church where the cult-like element is light and easy and uh, not particularly destructive. And so, yeah, anyone who's offering his opinions online is, to some degree, a guru. But you can have someone who's a destructive guru or someone who has a little bit of self-awareness. Be content with the way what politicians are doing and their priorities. And I, I feel that the, the heterodox sphere, like in some sense, they're slightly utopian because they presented as if we could get there. If we recreated the institutions and we, we, you know, we wiped it all away that we could get to like this much better world. And I think, no, the world is always going to be imperfect and crappy and we can reform things. We can improve the scientific process. We can improve journalism, um, but you'll never get to that utopia. Um, so, so my institutional bias is just leaning towards that on average, like if you followed the CDC and the WHO recommendations since the beginning of the pandemic, the primary activities that they emphasized were stay socially distanced, wear a mask for the vast majority of the pandemic, get vaccinated. Those three things, if you followed them, you're doing pretty decent. Whereas on the heterodox side, you, you have a scorecard which is more concerning, including like don't get vaccinated. And uh, you know, depending how far you go into the heterodox sphere, don't socially distance, don't be, uh, masks don't work. Or... Okay, let's see what's on Twitter about Joe Biden. November 16, 2016, two weeks after Donald Trump's victory, Joe Biden is on the phone with Poroshenko. 
His voice tenser now than before. This is getting very, very close. What I don't want to have happen, I don't want Trump to get into position where he thinks he's about to buy onto a politics where the financial system is going to collapse and he's going to be looked to to pour more money into Ukraine. That's how he'll think about it before he gets sophisticated enough to know the details. In other words, Biden does not want Ukraine asking for more money from Trump. Doing so would cause Trump to look into the details. So anything you can do to push the, the, the private bank uh, um, to closure so that the IMF loan comes forward I would respectfully suggest is critically important to your economic as well as physical security. Critically. Okay, and uh, chat wants to talk about World War Three. Putin is visiting Iran next week. Well, Russia doesn't have many allies, so it has to it has to maximize the ones that it, that it does have. So, I. I have no idea what's uh, what's going to result from this coalition. I don't know who's winning the war, but what I do know is we need to talk about, gentlemen, the hermeneutics of suspicion. And I know you want to talk about it as badly as I do. Tax is the label that has been given by reactionary political groups to taxes that are levied on the estates of people when they die. Okay, And they call it the death tax because they want to stigmatize it because, of course, that doesn't seem very nice to tax people for dying. You might think when you die, you finally get to escape taxes. And so they call it the death tax because really they would like to eliminate any tax liability for extremely wealthy people when they die. All right? So that's the, the first category of judgment that I'm going to work with as an example. Um, second one, punching down is wrong. Now, I don't know if this has become current in Europe, but this has become very current in the United States. Um, where, as you probably know, American universities are the specialists in hypersensitivity to offense. And so punching down is wrong means someone of higher status should not be criticizing or attacking someone of lower status. And that's wrong. Okay? So that's the second value judgment I want to work with. Punching down is wrong. And then the third is fairly straightforward. Homosexuality is wrong. Um, let me just put a little context into this. Roughly once every year in the United States, um, some evangelical Protestant preacher who is a stern enemy of homosexuality, of gay marriage, um, or some very prominent right-wing politician who is an enemy of gay marriage and homosexuality is exposed as having gay sex on the side. Okay? Um, and that will be important for purposes of Freud's example. Okay, now why should we be suspicious when people say things like the death tax is wrong, punching down is wrong, homosexuality is wrong? Well, let me just start with a kind of crude initial gloss on the way in which Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, what they might say about each of these. Okay? So, why do people in the United States, many people, believe the death tax is wrong? The Marxian answer, and this is B1 on your handout, the ruling class made you believe it. It was a kind of ideological indoctrination. It was in the interest of extremely wealthy people that you be persuaded that taxing the estates of people upon death is wrongful. And let me just add a, a factual detail here that's important, which is that there are no taxes 
on your wealth at death unless it's more than a million dollars now. It may even be higher than that. And even then, you really have to have more than $10 million to even perhaps run into some, some real trouble because there are ways to avoid it um, before then. And Marx's thought is, if you as a citizen worth $500,000 or an ordinary amount of money, not a super rich person, if you realized that the reason you had come to believe that this was a death tax and that it was wrongful was because it was in the interest of extremely wealthy people that you believe it, you'd have a lot of trouble believing it any further. And we'll come back to that. All right, how about the second one? You think that, and now this is in the, in the spirit of Nietzsche, punching down is wrong. Well, the real reason you believe that is because you're envious, to start with, of those who are in a position to punch down, and at the same time you're afraid. Right? It's harmful, it's upsetting, it's disturbing that they can do this to you. But you can't do anything about it. I mean, you can't really do anything about it. You can't, by hypothesis here, punch back in any meaningful way. So you're left with this combination of fear and envy, and all you can do is declare, well, it's wrongful behavior. And of course, it's ironic because if you envy it, you'd actually like to do it too, but you can't. Right? And so perhaps you're motivated by that emotion that Nietzsche called raisonnement, which is a kind of combination of both envy and sort of festering hatred, frustration. When something is harmful to you, you can't do anything about it. You wish you could do it too, but you can't. And this gives rise to a different value judgment. Oh, actually, punching down is just wrong. Nobody ought to do that. Nobody ought to do that. And then our third. And this is Freud's hypothesis. And this is not Freud's hypothesis, just to be clear, about anyone's judgment that homosexuality is wrong. Um, but it often turns out to be a diagnosis that's apt for those who are most obsessed with the wrongness of homosexuality. Namely that it's your fear of your own desire for gay sex that made you believe it. In other words, in Freudian terminology, right, hostility towards homosexuality right, is a reaction formation. That is, it's a kind of defense mechanism that the psyche puts up right, when it is aware at an unconscious level of a strong desire for homosexual sex, one that the subject experiences is very frightening, socially unacceptable, whatever the explanation is. They can't bear the thought. And so to protect themselves from their own actual desire, they adopt as their conscious posture the view that homosexuality is morally abhorrent. So, yeah, this is the time and this is the place, right, for you to talk about your desire for gay sex and how you have developed this public posture that you think gay orgies fueled by methamphetamines are abhorrent, but share with us how you've only developed this, this public posture because you are frightened to your very core by how much you desire gay sex. Right. This is the time and this is the place for you to share about that. So we're talking here about the hermeneutics of suspicion. And the professor there was drawing on the works of Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud. Now, there's someone, a leftist, who has developed this in, in a much deeper way that just kind of blew my mind. It's uh, philosopher Ronnie Goldman. And he's got this work in progress called Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So he takes left-wing critiques and applies them to the left, right? So the, the left 
bills itself, uh, let's just take the New York Times as an example of the left, as objective, diverse, inclusive, thoughtful, reality-based, benevolent. Well, perhaps not. So people on the left tend to be the worst offenders of their own axioms when they talk about the evils of those who dispute their liberal versions of reality, their liberal versions of facts and policy and morality. So the bigotry that people on the left direct towards those with whom they merely disagree is staggering. Right? So the New York Times and mainstream journalists and academics and big shots in academia and bureaucracy, they imagine themselves as uniquely objective and inclusive and thoughtful. And they've cultivated this automatic social reflex that dismisses conservative opinions as mental or emotional immaturity, some mindless reptilian instinct, some unthinking fear and hatred, right, that easily recognized as such by these sophisticated souls. So there's this social reflex that's become integral to liberal identity. It's become woven into the social fabric. So people on the right find themselves suffocated by an insidious and pervasive conservophobia, right? Fear and hatred and loathing of conservatives is America's last socially acceptable bigotry. Why is it socially acceptable? Because people on the left occupy the high grounds of American culture. They dominate almost all our institutions. Right? So the left's vaunted ideals of tolerance, diversity, understanding, they are not extended to people on the right. Right? So if you expose the moral and intellectual failings that liberals associate with conservatives, you'll, you'll see this subtly mirrored in liberals' own treatment of people on the right, right? So it's time to make people on the left answerable to their own professed ideals. And it has now fallen upon conservatives or people on the right to essentially uphold the left's professed ideals and hold them accountable, right? So... This conservative claim of cultural oppression is not about defending some traditional order of things before which all upstanding God-fearing citizens must submit. Rather, it is a way of unearthing the deeper structures of liberal left discourse to expose how that way of talking and thinking and speaking about reality makes natural the unearned privileges of people on the left and passing it off as some sort of timeless order of things when really... It is a contingent status hierarchy. So when conservatives claim cultural oppression, they essentially hold themselves out as the counterculture to the dominant liberal culture. They are the last holdouts of resistance against the false consciousness of the liberal left hegemony. So the conventional wisdom of people like the New York Times is that conservatism thrives on vague cultural resentments that channel what are essentially economic grievances into symbolic obsessions with the depredations of an imaginary liberal elite whose haughty pretentiousness is spaciously contrasted with the basic goodness and authenticity of the conservative ordinary American, the salt of the earth. And so from the New York Times perspective, this is how conservative propagandists like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity divert the attention of ordinary Americans away from the transgressions of the real ruling class, the, the business elite, who know how to harness social conservatism toward their own advantage. And so from a left-wing perspective, this diagnosis is supported by the historical record. It's the story of the modern conservative movement, and it's just basic common sense about the average American's real interests.
Now, if liberals cannot be brought to acknowledge genuine conservative grievances, that's because their very identities as liberals inures them to that to which the grievances react, right? It's a perennial theme of the left that oppressed groups can perceive iniquities that dominant groups are disposed to overlook, right? It's your white privilege that makes you blind to the horrible things that whites are doing to non-whites, all right? It's your privilege, bro, that is blinding you. Now, if the person on the left wants to be intellectually consistent, they must ask whether the relationship between liberals and conservatives in America could be yet another instance of this phenomenon. Have liberals transgressed against conservatives in ways that their very liberalism does not allow them to recognize? Right? So liberals are going to claim that conservative claims of cultural oppression are just empty posturing. But is that not to be expected that a ruling class will thus dismiss the outcries of the oppressed group? Right? Liberals have this bemused incredul incredulity toward conservative grievances. But maybe that's just a natural byproduct of the very oppression being alleged. Maybe the dominant culture's language and concepts will always privilege the perspective of its ruling elites who shape the common sense to which oppressed groups are made to answer. So maybe the critical theorists of the left who've long made these arguments on behalf of racial minorities, women, and gays, well, what happens when you extend these arguments, the, the hermeneutics of suspicion, on behalf of people on the right, right? So liberal elites believe that they stand above retrograde conservatism, which they think their enlightenment ideals, right? That uh, everyone's born naturally good and a society that's corrupted people, but through the pursuit of reason, we can, we can liberate people on the right from their various hero systems to which people on the right remain beholden. So hero systems are ways of thinking about ultimate reality. They are systems of collective production of meaning. And so liberals see conservatism as sustained by this primitive attraction to these relics of pre-modernity. But the conservative suspicion is that liberalism is itself a hero system in disguise. It's a hero system that stays concealed behind a secular facade of enlightenment, pragmatism, and utilitarianism. So liberals wish to see themselves as committed solely to ordinary human fulfillment shorn of any higher metaphysical aspirations. But people on the right see that left, leftism, liberalism, is unbeknownst to itself, driven by a secularized religious impulse and a secularized spiritual ideal that, that plays themselves out through the medium of ostensibly secular goals. So liberalism is a hero system that disguises itself as the transcendence of all hero systems. So this aspiration to rise above the merely human was once conceived in expressly religious terms as fealty to the city of God over the city of man. But today, this aspiration has become secularized and it transpires politically and culturally as the imperative to rise above conservatism toward liberalism and leftism. And it gives its adherents a special feeling of spiritual purity that stands exalted above the fallen realm of conservatism. So from a liberal left perspective, conservatism is not a competing philosophy to be reputed. It is essentially an ingrained sinfulness to be exposed and to be disciplined away. So the hero systems of the right valorize concepts like God, country, and family, and they must operate in full public view. But the hero systems of the left operate secretly within insulated institutional enclaves whose specialized discourse provides them with a pragmatic veneer. 
So this is what distinguishes the power of the left from that of its rival power brokers on the right who do not enjoy the benefit of this plausible deniability. Right? People on the left think they are objective. People on the right know that they hold a particular worldview. So this is why you have a proliferation of conservative laments about the cultural decadence of various liberal elite enclaves like academia, the media, and Hollywood, which are understood to perpetuate this essential inequality and deception and oppression of the right. So it is in these enclaves that the left rules that uh, allows liberals to imagine that they have transcended the primitive and unconscious identity affirmation needs of conservatives in favor of this new rational autonomy, this enlightenment that can dispense with the hero systems of the right. So today's culture wars are a contemporary recapitulation of the struggles by which modernity first emerged out of the pre-modern. It's a clash between elites trying to inculcate the disciplines and repressions of the modern identity and the unwatched masses trying to resist this extirpation of their traditional often disordered folkways, a role now filled by traditional American values. So conservatives feel culturally oppressed by power-hungry, control-obsessed liberal leftists, where liberal leftists see only right-wing rhetoric because they haven't fully internalized the modern ideal of the self. Right? So conservatives are more viscerally attuned to its cultural contingency of liberalism. They're more averse to particular forms of disciplined, disengaged agency into which liberals have been more successfully socialized. So contemporarily, contemporary liberalism represents the apex of the disciplinary impulses that created modernity. And the most extreme outgrowth of the secularization of this religious impulse and the democratization of this sensibility, all right, the, the now forgotten pre-enlightenment roots of progressive sensibilities. So liberals celebrate their superior civility, right? This is a modern and secularized variant of them supposedly superseding their base natural impulses. And it is these impulses that fuel liberals' reflexive aversion to traditionalism and conservatism, right? That the, the uh, right-wing ways of viewing life are just basically, you know, crude animal instincts, right? They are a sinful indiscipline, and they are a, an affront to the higher refinement of liberal sensibilities. So politically incorrect gun enthusiasts tend to be the most intensely detested of liberalism's many enemies because they refuse this training. So they serve liberals as premier social symbols for the unhinged impulsivity and the potential violence of the undisciplined pre-modern self lacking the disengaged self-control and self-possession of the modern liberal New York Times identity, right? So liberals define themselves in opposition to this barbaric past, so they must shame and stigmatize all who remind them of it. And conservatives are replete with such reminders, therefore they must be extirpated. So liberals see themselves as at the vanguard of the modern West civilizing process. So this has thrust them into the role of disciplinarians. And in reaction to that, people on the right have cultivated their own special kind of emancipationist ethos. So conservatives may well have absorbed the moral and intellectual reflexes of the left and, and developed a postmodernism and multiculturalism of the right because they are targets of the same civilizing norms that the left used to protest had been imperiously foisted upon non-white, non-Western peoples by a condescending European colonialism. So liberalism is secretly illiberal 
because it can flourish only in as much as it is prepared to coerce this particular brand of self-discipline and self-control upon the unwilling whose suffering and alienation in the face of this undeclared agenda never enters liberalism's moral calculus. So liberals cannot see the broader context of their idealism because their antiquated enlightenment view of reason as predominantly conscious and disembodied leaves them insensible to this embodied layer of human experience and so overconfident of their ability to recognize oppression and inequality. So it's like the difference between going to yoga and taking Alexander Technique classes, right? You go to yoga because you feel like you need to get fit, that you've got some back pain, that, that you develop some unhelpful habits, right? And you want to have a healthier way of living. But when you do yoga, you will only ingrain the habits you already have, your self-destructive habits of unnecessary tension and compression. So you feel like you are doing something good for you, but you're really only ingraining the ways that you have unconsciously learned to oppress and pull yourself down and make yourself tighter and less flexible. Now, when you take an Alexander Technique lesson, you are learning to recognize your habits of compression and oppression and pulling down. And you learn ways to start to let go of your unconscious habits that pull you down and distort your, your body, distort how you do everything, ruin your posture, and cause all sorts of health problems. So just before the 2008 election on MSNBC's Morning Joe program, and the discussion was the increasingly unhinged racism and xenophobia seemed to be gripping crowds at McCain-Palant rallies, where some attendees, apparently driven batty by the prospect of an African-American president, reacted with shouts of terrorist and kill him at the mere mentions of Barack Obama's name. So the show's mild-mannered conservative host, former GOP Congressman Joe Scarborough, responded that these outbursts were surely beyond the pale. But he then seized upon these reports as an occasion to remind liberals that they should also pay attention to their own incivility problems, to stop judging conservatives by a double standard as though they were the only ones capable of lapsing into incivility. When a few misfits behave outrageously at Republican campaign events, this is taken by liberals as evidence for the latent racism and general depravity of conservatives. But no objections are raised when a well-respected liberal commentator like Thomas Frank writes a book such as What's the Matter with Kansas?, Right? A book that takes aim not at one man, but at an entire state and dismisses its conservative voting citizens as idiots. Right? So Joe Scarborough is quite willing to turn around and criticize his own when they cross the line, yet liberals seem unwilling to engage in similar self-policing, unwilling to acknowledge, let alone denounce, the hatred and bigotry that grows in their own ranks. So conservatives are routinely held accountable for the slightest modicum of real or perceived bigotry, while liberals can casually indulge their own bigotry against conservatives in plain view without any fear of reproach. So liberals routinely excoriate as beyond the pale any and all speculation into the genetic basis and heritability of intelligence. Right? You can't look into the genetic basis and heritability of group differences or gender differences. Right? But liberals are astonishingly hypocritical in their own giddiness to entertain the notion that conservatives have broken brains based solely on the fact that they are conservatives. So Jonah Goldberg makes this point in his book, Liberal Fascism. And so Satoshi 
Kanazawa, a psychologist, argues in Psychology Today that liberalism represents a genetically novel dispensation. So we have an evolutionary history in close-knit tribal societies. Who's your mob? Who your mob, mate? Right? So we grew up in in ancient times in close-knit tribal societies, and this naturally disposes us to restrict our altruism to our kin. But liberalism has a willingness to devote large proportions of private resources for the benefit of those who are not genetically related to us. So liberalism perhaps represents the transcendence of our merely natural state. It's a freedom from the rigorous genetic logic that binds other animals. So perhaps this is why liberals are smarter than conservatives, why apart from a few areas in life, such as some areas of business, right, liberals control all our institutions because they are just so smart. But the Achilles heel of this argument, he taught Jonah Goldberg, resides in the exceptions it concedes. So conservatives are frequently successful in business. Reason is that business, just like the military, law enforcement, engineering, and the hard sciences, does not create institutional ideological filters to screen out conservatives. The bottom line in business is the bottom line, profit, rather than affinity for social engineering, liberal groupthink, or progressive do-goodery. So this is why conservatives can thrive in these fields as they cannot in liberal-dominated milieu. So the genetic argument is only plausible if we first discount the obvious cultural, historical, and social explanations for discrepancies in liberal and conservative performance in fields like academia, entertainment, and publishing. So anyone who knows how these institutions actually work knows that their gatekeepers aren't simply keeping stupid conservatives out. They're keeping conservatives out, period. And this kind of mirrors the historical dispute between white supremacists and their egalitarian adversaries. So the liberal here is attempting to defend an unequal status quo. Oh, so you think that some groups are smarter than others. You think that some groups commit more crimes than others. You think some groups have more stable families than others. You think that there are all these predictable life history patterns that can be basically broken, broken down by racial groups. You're saying essentially that nature has color-coded people for our benefit, right? So the conservative decries this explanation of the liberal that, that uh, unequal group outcomes are the result of culture. And the liberal says, oh, this, this explanation is self-serving, right? You're making all these claims of pervasive prejudice and discrimination, right? You're highlighting the need for egalitarian change. But uh, many on the left regard themselves, liberals, as a master race, right? And people on the right could argue this is a social illusion generated by unequal power relations. The liberals dominate most parts of our society. They dominate almost all our institutions. So I'm sure you've all been enjoying these very tasty excerpts that I, I've shared with you from uh, Decoding the Guru's latest episode on Lex Friedman and uh, Jonathan Haidt. So, tries extremely hard at everything. So I'm not sure it is performative. I think he might just be telling us what he's focused on at the moment. So would you say, like, for example, base? Sometimes I stand, not wearing a suit. I sometimes wear a suit, especially if I'm going to film. I wear a suit when I go outside. I just enjoy the way I feel when I wear a suit. But at home, I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans. Right now, I'm not wearing any pants. Just kidding. I'm wearing jeans. But uh, you wouldn't know it if I didn't, which is the magic of the internet. So I like that joke. He did have these quips where he delivers their pan and he does it a couple of times. Sometimes they're not good, but when they're good, they're nice little asides. 
I feel like I get some insight into Lex's personality. And most of this is about his personality rather than about whatever he's arguing for or his takes on things, which we're going to get to. But yeah, with those little jokes and this little quiet smile he's got, I've met people like that. And yes, the jokes aren't super funny, <laughs> but I think they indicate something nice. There's a fucking fun. Yeah, I get a good vibe from Lex. The Paul fierceness, I think, could do better with being you know, a bit more punctured. And he does do that. He does sometimes like kind of poke fun at himself. Uh, it's nice to see. But like there, he described wearing a suit, right, at all times when he's outside because he likes the way it makes him feel. And now, if you've seen Lex, he's always dressed in this kind of same suit, right? Like a, a black suit with a black, thin black tie. Yeah, like Superman. Yeah, or like men in black, right? That kind of look, if you imagine it. And so for you, and maybe for me as well, I'm just thinking this through, is you think that Lex is just telling it like it is. He likes the feeling of a suit, so he just wears a suit at all times outside in the summer. Yeah, my son, who's 12, went for many years when he was younger, just wanting to wear the same color shirt, the same color pair of pants and identical copies of those. And I think there's a certain kind of male instinct, which is comfortable with having like a uniform. I mentioned Superman because I'm imagining like 10 Superman outfits racked up next to each other. I could see a certain kind of satisfaction and comfort in that for a certain kind of person. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess if you put it like that, like viewing it as a kind of a costume or a uniform that you wear, it does make sense. Okay, and the chat uh, asks, uh, my circumcision, did it hurt? Well, I was circumcised as an infant. And so I had two ritual circumcisions where they use that device where you prick, prick the skin uh, to draw a little bit of blood, right? So it's called a hatafat da'am. It's a ritual circumcision. So I had that done twice. My initial conversion was in 1992-93 and then had it again in 2009. So, yeah, you never really forget when someone pricks your, your prick to get a little bit of blood. But, hey, it was all worth it. So I love this work in progress on conservative claims of cultural oppression, the nature and origins of conservophobia, because this book is written by a leftist, but he takes left-wing critiques and applies them to the left, right? And, and he displays empathy for people on the right, right? So you've got the gatekeepers of academia publishing Hollywood, or these bastions of liberalism, and they believe that they are judging merit, and it's just purely on the basis of merit that liberals are succeeding in these institutions and conservatives are not. Just like when it comes to different outcomes for races, conservatives say, well, this is merit, right? Different groups have different gifts. So some people are better suited to running fast. Other people are better at rapping. Other people are better at playing basketball. Other people are better at business, that some groups are more intelligent than other groups. Some groups commit high rates of crime than other groups. Some groups have more solid family lives. And the left-wing critique of that is, oh, that's just because society has been set up a certain way, just because institutions have been set up a certain way. Well, why can't you apply that left-wing critique to left-wing institutions? Maybe it's not the left succeeding purely on the basis of merit. Maybe the institutions have been set up in a way that rewards people on the left and punishes people on the right, right? So people, people on the left complain that white people are constantly unconsciously discriminating against blacks, right? So the, the left-wing critique is that our prevailing measures of supposedly objective merit, that these are just reflections of white supremacy, right? Maybe the whole idea of merit just serves white people's need to believe that their social positions and life outcomes are the result of something more than the brute fact of social power and racial domination. But maybe liberal merit, 
Maybe that's just merely an instrument of liberal domination. Right? Maybe liberal institutions are being fine-tuned to exclude conservatives and to suppress conservative achievement. Right? Maybe the shortage of black academics, as Henry Louis Gates argues, is that white people are simply not being trained to recognize black intelligence. Well, is it not also possible that liberals have not been trained to recognize conservative intelligence or have been trained to not recognize it? Right, when you look at things like black nationalism, right, you've got critical race theorists who argue that liberal integrationism is premised on the mistaken assumption that the category of merit itself is neutral and personal and that it somehow developed outside the economy of social power with a significant currency of race, class, and gender that marks American social life. But maybe liberalism has its own economy of social power. Maybe only by ignoring this background can liberals bask in their imagined intellectual superiority. So liberals argue that conservatives are underrepresented in academia because they are temperamentally drawn to other professions. But maybe this is because conservatives, like black students, lack proper role models. Maybe like blacks and other oppressed minorities, maybe from the beginning they were dismissed by their liberal professors as hopeless cretins. Maybe they were never placed in a position to develop the talents that would allow them to succeed. Maybe they've been deprived of opportunity because of the domination of the liberal master race. So people on the left say racists generate their own social truth by creating conditions under which oppressed races are forced to conform to racial prejudices. Or maybe liberalism produces its own self-fulfilling prophecies, creating what it then casts as the natural inequality of liberals and conservatives. Right? Liberals may not see their intellectual and moral and social standards as politically motivated, just as whites do not conceive of themselves as a distinctive racial group. Maybe for white people, according to critical theorists on the left, their consciousness of whiteness is predominantly an unconsciousness of whiteness. While perhaps liberals suffer from an analogous blindness, maybe they fail to recognize themselves as a distinct class with distinct values, distinct tastes, distinct interests, Maybe this is the silent background of their anti-conservative biases. Right, maybe conservatives should be understood on their own terms rather than assimilated to the values, the interests, and the prejudices of the dominant liberal culture. Right, the left has traditionally leveled a demand on behalf of oppressed minorities, on behalf of women, racial minorities, gays, and the disabled, against the injustices of patriarchy, white supremacy, heterosexism, and ableism. Well, maybe it's time to turn those critiques against the left, right? Maybe conservatives should be issuing a parallel set of claims, which liberalism's own first principles require them to acknowledge, right? Maybe it's time. Right? You've heard the term people of faith, so that originally... It's kind of a new agey aversion to organized religion, but it's caught on among conservative Christians. They see the advantages of comparing themselves with other oppressed groups. So you have an anti-abortion activist like Lila Rose, who told her supporters, who says we can't have an America completely free with the complete end of abortion. We can have that America. We overcame many things in our history. We've overcome many things from slavery to civil rights abuses in the 20th century to child labor. We've overcome many things, even the Revolutionary War, to have our independence won. We've overcome many things in this country, the women's rights movement for suffrage, and we can overcome. We can defeat the hopelessness and the lies and the despair 
that says that we need abortion and we can overcome it and it's happening. So William F. Buckley defined a conservative as a fellow who is standing athwart history yelling stop. But conservative positions are perhaps better understood as onward. Maybe they are a core to forward-looking progress. Maybe they are the next courageous step in an ongoing struggle for the freedom and dignity of an ever-expanding circle of moral concern. Right? It was the liberals of the civil rights era who first chanted, we shall overcome. But it is now conservatives who ask us to overcome liberalism itself in the name of its own first principles. So Phyllis Schlafly, for example, railed against the meaninglessness and lack of fulfillment among American women in the spirit of Betty Friedan and blamed those ills of American women on feminism rather than sexism. So the ERA was opposed by Phyllis Schlafly as a threat to women's most fundamental rights, such as the right to be supported by a husband and to keep one's baby. So the American Center for Law and Justice, the ACLJ, right, is the ACLU of the right. It views itself as defending the religious freedom of Christians against secular oppression. So maybe the meaning of liberal ideals is essentially indeterminate and can simply be constantly reinterpreted in, in accordance with conservative priorities. So the initial prerogatives that the left threatened were things like landed titles, corporate monopolies, union busting, any kind of white male or heterosexual privilege. But now the left is going after the mere social dignity of simply not being a leftist. Right? Liberal tolerance has not been extended to people on the right. The last remaining social group that it is perfectly permitted to scorn and to hate and to persecute with a good conscience, right? the forgotten minority that got overlooked amidst all the liberal celebrations of tolerance, sensitivity, and diversity is the conservative, right? So conservative college students tend to be buried under an avalanche of scorn, both from their professors and peers. They are treated as if they are Cro-Magnons with bones in their noses. Then one or two rounds in the barrel, conservative thinking students learn the local custom. And this custom is to keep their mouths shut if their viewpoints run contrary to the prevailing winds of liberalism in the classroom. Now, for growing numbers of organizations of conservative women, they are developing conservative safe space stickers. So they're appropriating a concept that used to be used to highlight gays' special vulnerability to harassment and abuse, right? But gays are no longer the group shunned or berated on modern college campuses. Campus intolerance has now turned on conservatives, and it is the conservative students and faculties who most need a safe space. So liberalism has erected a vast regime of sensitivity training to uproot every last trace of real or imagined homophobia, but they will not take the slightest steps to remedy another equally pressing problem, and that is their own conservophobia. So Ann Coulter notice, notices that liberals, when featured on the covers of Time and Newsweek or, or the New York Times, are always bathed in a beatific light, while conservatives are photographed in lighting that casts a menacing glow and always seem to show five o'clock shadows. So TV and Hollywood tends to treat lawyers, teachers, social workers, and others who work in liberal professions to mostly sunny portrayals, while disproportionately casting businessmen in villainous roles. So if the entertainment industry formally relegated blacks to the roles of pimps, criminals, vagrants, and other undesirables, so now it is conservatives who must play social prize and have been doing so in the entertainment industry for more than 50 years. And this environment of hostility is seriously eroding conservatives' quality of life. 
that just as blacks in the Jim Crow South face the constant risk of harassment from racist whites for whom simply being black was provocation enough. So Ben Shapiro argues that today's young conservatives have to face liberal bullying on a daily basis from the elementary school level through grad school and onto their careers, particularly in law, education, and Hollywood. Uh, conservative commentator Laura Ingram was bullied at her first media job at CBS. She was prohibited from entering the makeup room until Libra Paula Zahn had exited. Conservative book buyers are bullied by the unionized employees of Barnes & Noble. David Horowitz alleges that these liberal bullies go out of their way to make conservative book purchases in their regard as barely literate Philistines feel unwelcome. There's a book by Jebediah Biller, Outnumbered, The Chronicles of a Manhattan Conservative, and it recounts the author's life in New York City during the heady days of the 2008 elections. So in a hostile, unforgiving world in which a conservative with a Palin power label lapel pin cannot so much as enter a subway car or turn a street corner without being denounced as racist, dumb, or an ignorant bitch by passers-by. So the author was flabbergasted when an acquaintance acknowledged, I just know that I was brought up to believe that conservatives aren't good people, and people I've met, conservative people, always rub me the wrong way. So what Jews were a century ago, conservatives are today. They are the recipients of unthinking inherited prejudice, and this bigotry is given a free pass in the mecca of enlightened progressivism. So liberals deny their conservative phobia. They, they chalk it up to the intensity of their anger toward conservatives to conservatives' own beliefs and conduct. But don't opponents of homosexuality justify their homophobia in the same way as principled moral opposition to a socially deleterious practice like orgies at a bathhouse while doing a lot of meth? So liberals claim that moral opposition to homosexuality simply reveals more about the moral opponent than it does about homosexuality, than homosexuals. Well, if you then apply that argument on liberals, conservatives believe that liberals' phobia about conservatives reveals the liberals' unacknowledged internal conflicts. So people on the left are consumed with a primal but irrational desire to inflict their emotions on you so that you might share their misery and feel their pain. So conservatives are the new socially sanctioned scapegoats. They are foils upon which liberals project every social ill, on which liberals externalize their every psychic conflict, upon which liberals rationalize their projections with this aura of moral high-mindedness that disguises their real motivations. So if liberals insist on diversity, tolerance, and equal respect, then conservatives should insist that they be afforded the genuine article rather than Orwellian inversions that liberalism, in fact, offers. It's because that's a serious attire when he's out in the world living up to his principles as a man. Well, I think I'll do it like that myself, not in terms of wearing the suits, but just in terms of wearing like the same thing each day. Like I just buy like 10 t-shirts from the same brand. I vary the color, they're not all black. <laughs> I was waxing lyrical about the unicode, and it's the same now, the breathable summer wear. It's fantastic. So I do get that. And I, I guess if I wanted to steal mana, it's a bit like in the pandemic when everybody was working from home, that putting on a suit or whatever you wear to your office could put you in a different mindset, right? And that seems to be what Lex is angling for here. Yeah.
like I was trying to say with the references to the Nazis and stuff like that, I think Lex is emoting things that most people think, but he's saying it in a very simple and upfront way, a little bit like the idiot in Dostoevsky, ironically enough, but in a way that most people don't do. Most people are kind of more cynical and sophisticated than that. And actually that might speak to his appeal and why he is such a popular YouTuber slash podcaster, why he does get such a wide variety of high profile guests. At some level, people, Americans particularly, probably respond to that kind of innocence. So the last thing, then, at the end of his day, let's see what he does before he heads off to Betty Buys. Actually, after the hour of uh, literature reading, I always take a pause and do the part of the mantra that I do in the morning. That's gratitude. Again, it's being thankful that I'm alive, that I survived another day, looking forward to the next day, and just be grateful for all of the moments that are full of joy in the day. I mean, just even filming this silly thing, it's like fun. There's a piece of technology that somehow is capturing this that other people might watch. And then there's like a microphone. I mean, just the entirety of the technology, everything is magical. Everything is magical. Everything's magical. Lex Friedman. Right, so conservatism, this is from Ronnie Goodman's work in progress on conservophobia. Conservatism has always prescribed cultural nationalism, right, on the premise that uprooted moral universalism cannot provide the social cohesion that is brought about by narrower circles of identification, such as nationalism, cultural nationalism in which true ethical feeling must always be rooted. So I understand people, not primarily as individuals, but members of a family, a group, a nation, a, a mob. So the, the little platoon we belong to is the first group that we should love. It's the first link in the series by which we proceed toward a love towards our country and then to mankind. So conservatism is now a form of cultural nationalism for the little platoon is now defined by conservatism itself. So conservatism, conservatives understand themselves as a despised, stigmatized group, right? They are punished for rejecting liberalism. They've been unofficially banished from full and equal participation in public life. So by claiming cultural oppression, they celebrate a new quasi-ethnic identity and story. And Laura Ingram observes, they think we're stupid. They think our patriotism is stupid. They think our church going is stupid. They think our flag waving is stupid. They think having big families is stupid. They think where we live anywhere but near or in a few major cities is stupid. They think our SUVs are stupid. They think owning a gun is stupid. They think our abiding belief in the goodness of America and its founding principles is stupid. They think the choices we make at the ballot box are stupid. And without a doubt, they will think this book is stupid. So liberals see stupidity. But conservative claimers of cultural oppression see the silent heroism of a beleaguered and colonized people who resist the encroachments of a coterie of cloistered elites, uprooted rationalists and cosmopolitans with nothing but contempt for the native culture of the less eloquent but more wholesome ordinary American who is now seen to exist on a lower moral, intellectual and spiritual plane. To live in a world where liberalism prescribes not only the terms of the debate, but also the rhetorical atmosphere in which any debate must take place. So liberalism in the public square has become taken for granted common sense. Conservative initiatives must be advanced in a context saturated by liberal assumptions. So we're all liberals now by dint of contagion, if not conviction. So given liberalism's present rhetorical supremacy, it is natural that conservatives would prefer to reinterpret liberal ideals in their own favor rather than categorically reject them. And this is what conservatives are doing by arguing that the protection of liberalism's own first principles has yet to be extended to them, and that liberals are therefore guilty of the very moral and intellectual vices that they associate with conservatives. So the social conservative 
will openly acknowledge his willingness to sacrifice social freedom, such as the right to abortion, to social order, right? We need order. Just as the economic conservative acknowledges his willingness to sacrifice equality for property rights. But by contrast, conservative attacks on liberals go to the core of liberalism's self-understanding. So conservative claims of cultural oppression seek to expose liberalism's core values, cultural diversity, tolerance, freedom of conscience, and social equality. These are all empty shams disguising what is an entirely opposite set of commitments. And this is why liberals are criticized by their own standards. So George Will takes Walmart's critics to task, writing, Liberals think their campaign against Walmart is a way of introducing the subject of class into America's political argument, and they are more correct than they understand. Their campaign is liberalism as condescension. It is a philosophic repugnance toward markets because consumer sovereignty results in the masses making messes. Liberals aghast see the choices Americans make with their dollars and their ballots announce, yes, announce that Americans are surely in need of more supervision by liberals. So the Paleocon magazine chronicles laments that once upon a time in America, you could say you loved your country, you believed in God, you held marriage is sacred, and you would not be snickered at as a simple-minded simpleton. You could believe in honesty, hard work, and self-reliance. You could speak of human responsibilities in the same breath as human rights and not be derided as an insensitive fool. You could speak out against profane books. You could speak out against depraved movies and decadent art. You could express your disapproval of drug-sodden entertainers, American-hating educators, and appeasement-obsessed legislators, and you would not be branded as an ignorant reactionary. And yes, once upon a time in America, you could actually believe in morality, both public and private, not be proclaimed a hopeless naive, more to be pitied than to be taken seriously. But that was before the censorship of fashion took control of contemporary American culture. So this insidious form of censorship is not written into our laws or statutes, but it is woven into the very fabric of our culture. It reigns supreme in literature and the arts, on TV and in film, in music, on radio, in our churches, public schools, in our universities, and even in our synagogues. It is dedicated to the propagation of one agenda, the liberal activist agenda for America. The censorship of fashion is not only sinister and subtle, it is also ruthlessly effective employs the powerful weapons of ridicule and condescension to stifle the voices of millions of Americans like you who still cherish our traditional values. Reminding myself of that doesn't take much effort, but just taking a break, taking a pause, just breathing and just saying, damn, it's good to be alive because uh, I won't always be alive. The right ends too quickly. So it's an um, opportunity, a moment to uh, appreciate the entirety of it. I know this grates at your very essence, Chris. He's like an anti-Chris Kavanaugh. He's like a pure beam of love. It's, but the thing is, it's not that I don't like being alive. I love it. I love it too. And there are moments when you're lying beside your kid, you have those moments where you feel that gratitude of existence. You don't want this right then. I get it, Max. I get it. I'm happy here too. But this notion that recording a YouTube video, looking at a microphone, made Lex start to appreciate the absolute beauty of the world, the interconnectedness of it all. Like, it's not that it's just every day he does that he has that no. moment of and it's after an hour of deep reading the deepest literature mankind has produced after 16 hours of physical work and productive time management done while fasted i know what you're saying i hear you i reckon part of it is it's the american cultural disconnect i'm not saying all americans are like no this. they're not 
we've interviewed many of them and some of them listen to this show and it would rub them the wrong way just as, as much as us. But there is a segment, there is a segment for which this kind of emanating, this childlike love and purity and naivete and these platitudes, there is an element in American culture for whom this is real and true. And there's just a difference there. There was an element there amongst the Puritans in Europe or amongst the spiritual mystics in Russia at various points in history. I think there's a mindset which is just full ball, just dancing like nobody's watching. And it's just different. You said platitudes, and that is part of what I feel. It's not that I think people shouldn't be grateful or reflect on how lucky they are, how marvelous it is that we live in this era of modern interconnectedness and all that. Have you ever gazed at me over your microphone and just felt grateful just for being here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the nice version of it, he's simply being grateful for all of the wonders that he gets to enjoy and for being alive. What's wrong with that? But it's that kind of platitudinous. It's combined with the whole, the Nazis, what bad guys? And life, it's a hell of a ride while you're on it. And mm. you got to love people out there. It's just like, it's all together. It feels like a saccharine overload of sincerity. It's hard for me, Matt. Where is the cynicism? And where is the grappling with the world as it is, where it is not this beacon of love and wonder, like every day is optimized to the core, where people sleep in and they have depression and they're not optimized in everything they do. And sometimes they fuck around and so on. And it's constraining the human spirit. In a way. Well, I think what you're saying is it doesn't feel real. You should read Doctor Who. <laughs> <Fuck idiot>. <laughs> I'm sorry, but seriously, the guy, the main character is called the idiot, and he is kind of an idiot. But the main thing is that he's simple and pure in the sort of Christian sense. And Dostoevsky was super into this kind of thing. And there's a cultural thing where they see it as an ennobling, being hyper aware, being encultured, and being contaminated by society is like a bad thing. And going back to a kind of simplicity and a purity is a beautiful and good thing. And in a way, Lex's shtick is kind of embodies that. So there's that. Okay, I think that'll do it for today. Take care. Bye-bye.